of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And uh, with no further ado, let's just get started this morning. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, my question is about uh, one of my oak trees. It's further back. Uh, it's not right up close to the house. It's sort of in a pasture. But, okay. Um, I noticed it's been, you know, just from the house, just looking at it, it looks kind of not so good. And I went out yesterday for a closer look, and it's got some worms in it. And uh, I did not put the the wasp out in January. So, but what is there anything I could do now? Well, things you can do, yes. Things you really need to do, probably not. Uh, as far as dealing with, uh, and by worms, you mean some caterpillars up eating the foliage on it. Exactly. They're going to be gone with the first really cool weather. And quite honestly, they just they don't do enough damage to really be overly concerned about. Um, about all you could do would be to spray with something like Spinosad, which is certainly a safe spray, but I just don't think it's uh, worth the effort to get out there. Now, if you already have a uh, sprayer that runs on the PTO of a tractor or something like that, something that will spray 30 or 40 feet, yeah, I guess you could <laughs> no. mix up some Spinosad, but... Uh, um, I don't think it's anything worth losing any sleep over because the caterpillars just aren't going to do enough damage to really cause you any concern. Uh, what I am more concerned about is why the caterpillars are there in the first place because usually when we see caterpillars, it's because the tree is stressed for some other reason. And if this tree is out in the pasture, it's still worth looking at to be sure that the root flare is exposed on that tree because... For one reason or another, sometimes soil gets piled up around them, and uh, uh, that oak, just like every other tree out there, doesn't want any soil piled above where the, the flare starts coming out from the base of the trunk. So I would check that. Um, of course, it's always... It's exposed. I exposed it a couple of years ago. I okay. exposed it again recently. It's very exposed. Okay. Well... then it probably is just a little drought stress. Uh, Who knows exactly what happens with these trees get a little stressed, but it just, it makes them a little bit more susceptible to the caterpillars coming in. But again, that's just a moth that flew through and said, huh, looks like a good place to lay some eggs. The caterpillars are really a temporary nuisance with this cold front uh, that has come through the past 48 hours. Uh, they are going to, they're going to finish their life cycle and move on very, very quickly. So I just wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Next year, I probably would be good about putting the trichogramma out uh, because, you know, they actually parasitize the eggs before the caterpillars ever get a chance to hatch. And uh, so it's a good way to head off a lot of problems. They're inexpensive, and they'll take care of lots of other issues around there. But uh for now, I I sure wouldn't lose any sleep over it. I don't think right. this is uh, this anything's okay. going to be a major problem, do you? When should I put the wasp out? It there are several different 
caterpillars that we are concerned about. Uh, the first, if we were look at the, you know, the growing season, the first time we are concerned is actually February, March, sometimes, not every year, but sometimes just when that new growth starts coming out on the live oaks, we get a little caterpillar, uh, well, there are actually two or three of them, that want to come in and eat that newest foliage on the oak trees. Um, the uh, Then in the summer months, we sometimes actually see what we call the forest tent caterpillars or webworms. Those are the two principal ones we would be concerned with on an oak tree. Now, pecan tree, we've got to think about the nutcase bears that actually damage the nuts, but really early early spring and very late spring are the two times to be concerned so and and probably oh i want to say eight years or nine years out of ten we don't see those early season caterpillars but when we see them they're just devastating you'll see them just practically take every new leaf off the tree and that's really hard on the oaks so if you want to be on the safe side you put your first batch out sometime mid to late January, and that's going to take care of the ones that could potentially do that very early season damage. And then for the summertime caterpillars, we put the trichogramma out sometime around, sometime between Easter and Mother's Day. Okay. We want okay. to, you know, we want to anticipate a bit uh, when we're likely to see the caterpillars because it's if you wait until just at the time they're going to come out, you're putting out, you know, maybe a thousand uh, or two, three thousand uh, of the little trichogramma wasps, which are going to go after the caterpillar eggs. If you put them out a few weeks before that, then the wasps go out, they parasitize. If every wasp parasitizes 200 eggs, then say we've got 2,000 caterpillars. All of a sudden we're up to 400,000 uh, new wasp coming out. If they have time to go through a generation or two, there's just an army of the little wasps out there before the moths show up to lay the eggs, and practically, you know, hardly a single single caterpillar gets by. Um, if you wait until the last minute, you've got you know 2,000 wasps instead of 200,000 wasps out there, and um, you know this never quite as effective, but. Uh, just any time you do it, you're going to make the situation better. But if you can anticipate when the caterpillars are likely to come out by a couple of weeks, then uh, you just stop worrying about that. Those little guys are going to be out there to take care of every caterpillar problem that comes along. And you get the side benefit. Uh, they go after the – they don't seem to target the uh, eggs of the caterpillars that make our beautiful butterflies. The trichogramma seem to target primarily the moth eggs – but that means they're going to take out the cabbage loopers that are going to want to get in your vegetable garden. You're going to take out a number of damaging things besides that little caterpillar that goes after your oak tree. So, you know, it's worth spending, you know, five or ten bucks a couple of times a year, in my opinion, just to be sure you don't have a problem. Okay. Do they last very long? Um, as long as they are, you know, finding caterpillar eggs to parasitize, and there's almost always some crop of eggs out there they just keep reproducing on and on and on they typically their numbers will go way down when we have three months of drought like we've had this summer uh their numbers are going to be down if we have one of those uh, you know single digit winters which don't happen very often our summer summertime dryness and in some years that turns into drought like it has this summer 
uh, that's what really knocks their, their population back and why it's nice to be able to sort of reinforce them uh, every winter. All right. I'll do it. And I thank you very much for well, the information. Well, excellent question. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I uh, hope you can get out and enjoy uh, this very, very pleasant weekend. Looks like we're going to have. I was actually relieved to see the caterpillars because at least it's not oak wilt. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's always a good thing. Do you have oak wilt in your area? Um, yes, in the surrounding area, like toward um, Hallettsville and, and that way it, it is. You know, if you ever want to sort of put out a little bit of life insurance for your oak trees against the oak wilt, every six months or so, um, how big in diameter is uh, the trunk of this uh, oak that we're, we're talking about? Um, I can't get my arms around it, okay. but I have put out <laughs> the uh, the cornmeal. Yeah, the cornmeal and now... Um, and the water. Yeah, the corn cornmeal soaked in the water is turning out to be as effective as just putting out dry cornmeal you only use about you know a 50th as much so your cornmeal goes a lot further and you're not worried about having the blasted wild hogs and everything else coming to try to eat the dry cornmeal so a lot of folks that i know are going more to the uh, put the cornmeal in water and then put that around the base of the tree rather than putting out the dry cornmeal which is what we did for you know quite a few years but it seems to be just 100% effective in stopping the oak wilt. So uh, uh, you're That's doing great. a good thing out there. Keep That's up the great. good work. All right. Thank you. Thank you for all your information. Or I wouldn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's. Uh, it, you know, I wouldn't be getting up as early as I have to get up on Saturday mornings if I didn't enjoy enjoy helping people and just in talking to people like you always makes it a pleasure, Kate. I never set my alarm, but I always work. Uh, wake up at 5.30 on Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. My alarm goes off at 3.15. Uh, 5.30 would be sleeping in most days for me, but uh, just know I appreciate you a great deal. All right. We appreciate you, too. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, have a totally open board if you want to get through and get on with uh, Zero Weight. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Um, we'll mention, uh, once again, uh, next Saturday morning now, we're going to be down at the herb market and this is just, uh, you know, it's golly, how many years have we been doing this? It is a really fun event that takes place, uh, usually the third Saturday of October, which happens to be the 19th this year. And, uh, herb market this year is going to be just bigger and better than ever. Uh, San Antonio water systems is helping put it on this year. There are going to be seminars on growing herbs. Mary Dunford's going to talk about the herb of the year. Uh, it's the agastache, uh, what they call the uh, anise hyssop is the herb of the year. I don't know how they keep coming up with a new herb every year, but uh, Mary Dunford's going to give a talk about that. And, of course, Mary is sort of the, the queen of uh, herb growing and use of herbs in this area. Then they're going to have their cooking seminars. They're going to have a, a deal where uh, the uh, Men's Garden Club's helping have kids pot up their own basil plant to take home and grow in the window through the winter months. And, of course, all the seminars are absolutely free. We'll be broadcasting the show down there. And uh, it's just a, a really, really fun event. It's, um, you know, a lot of years we've been doing this. Hopefully the weather will cooperate. But you're right down there. You're right around the corner from the farmer's market that they hold every Saturday down there. And the Pearl's just a fun place to go uh, Go visit anyway. Good shops, good restaurants, and a lot of nice open area. Just good, good place to go take a walk. So that's what we will be doing next Saturday morning. I sure hope you'll be a part of it. 
Mark and Michael are waiting, so let's get back to the phone lines. Good morning, Mark. Yes, I had a quick question. Um, when would be the best time to start planting uh, wildflowers, uh, specifically blue bonnets? Right now. Um, it's the you know Mother Nature drops the blue bonnet seeds in early summer. We don't normally recommend planting then because uh, if you have rain at the time the seed goes down, the blue bonnet sprouts, makes its first half of its biennial life cycle. And then if we don't get rain through the rest of the summer, a lot of times the plants die before they really have a chance to grow up and bloom the next year. When we put the seed out in October, um, even early November, uh, this is just perfect. Uh, it will take some water to get that seed germinated and growing, but the blue bonnet has to have that growing period of two to three months to make the first half of its biennial life cycle, which is that little low-growing rosette of leaves, uh, grows that way through the winter months, and then in the spring it goes into the second half of the life cycle, which is putting up the seed or putting up the flower head and blooming and hopefully making more seed for years to come. But uh, So we've got to get the seed planted early enough to let that little winter rosette grow. And uh, I'd, I'd say October is the primary time. I'd say you're, most years you're okay to plant on into December, but uh, at this point uh, i go ahead and get them in the ground. Are you going to plant in an area that you can water, or are you just going to be throwing them out in a native area? Uh, I'm going to plant them in my garden specifically. Oh. This is my next question. Um, I have a, a few cinder blocks, and I was wondering if I could put the seed inside the hole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Put two or three seeds per hole uh, because it won't hurt to crowd the plants together a little bit. Um, it's good fresh seed, I trust. Yes, sir. Yeah. I would even think about soaking it for maybe 15 minutes or so uh, in just some very dilute carrot juice. This is going to give you a higher, quicker percentage of germination. And um, just remember, the only drawback with the blue bonnets is once they've sprouted, you have to keep watering them to uh, have the success you're looking for. But if this is part of your vegetable garden, you're going to be there watering everything else. So I think you'll be very, very successful. Uh, and I would go ahead and get them planted as soon as you can. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. One, one last question. Uh, where'd you get your seed? Uh, actually, from H-E-B. They've got the seed packets. Okay. I hope that it is the right blue bonnet seed. Next year, I would be looking, if at all possible, from seed for seed from somebody like uh, Wild Seed Farm, somebody that's in this area. There are actually five or six different species of blue bonnets that grow across Texas. And you really want to get the variety that's specific to the hill country for the very best results. And uh, next time, I mean, we all go to HEB. I'll take a look at the seed they've got there. But just uh, remember that there are many different varieties of blue bonnets. And for the best results, you want the you want the hill country one. You don't want the East Texas one, which is what a lot of people, unfortunately, sell. So keep your fingers crossed that we've got you the right seed. And uh, I'll try to check that out when I'm at HEB one day this week. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Mark. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, uh, next up is Michael, then it'll be Sid. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm good. How about you this morning? Man, I'm fantastic. (laughs) I'm kind of pretending to be awake, but that's the thing I love about radio. You only have to sound awake. You don't have to look awake, which is a very good thing. I'm going to go sit in a deer stand here and just take a nap. (laughs) Well, good for you. You a bow hunter? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, that's a great sport and a good morning for it. But uh, I wish you the best of luck. 
Well, thank you. I mean, my wife gets upset with me because I rarely shoot anything because I just like being out in the woods, you know? Well, so, you know, I used to hunt deer for a long time, but I always did all my own processing and everything. And I got to the point I'd sit out there, that big old fat doe would walk out or whatever, ease the safety off and uh, side on there and say, you know, if I squeeze the trigger, I'm going to have three hours of butchering, wrapping, and most of the time I got to where I just put the safety back on and said, you know, it's more fun just to sit here and watch them and a whole lot less work. But I have to say, venison is certainly a good, healthy meat, and uh, I don't know if you've ever harvested and eaten axis, but since the axis are grazers rather than browsers, I'll put the uh, best chicken fried steak I've ever had in my life was uh, Axis deer. So anyway, well, above all, you enjoy. But how can I help you this morning? So I have a garden at home, and I have some tomato plants. And the plants themselves are doing really awesome. I mean, they're, they're good, healthy plants. And they get blossoms all the time, mm-hmm. but they will not produce one tomato. The problem is temperatures. Um, your big fruited tomatoes, now cherry tomatoes ought to be setting fruit, but your big fruited tomatoes, they don't produce if the nights are too hot. They don't produce if the nights are too cool. And this year we have gone from having above average temperatures and now it is suddenly pretty chilly. I think you are probably going to see a fair amount of fruit set in the next week or two because we're back into that range where the blossoms will set. And uh, it's just been, the the night temperatures have been too high ever since uh, probably late June. And uh, everybody's looking at the same thing. Next year, be sure you plant plant some cherries, some juliets, some sun golds, some sweet 100s, because they don't pay nearly as much attention to temperature. And you'll always be, usually be harvesting cherry tomatoes. It's just the big fruited ones that we have the problem with. But 98% of the time, the problem is nighttime temperatures. Occasionally and very occasionally, we see, you know, lack of phosphorus in the soil being a problem. But if you put some, I put a handful of rock phosphate in the bottom of the hole when I plant those plants initially, and that's enough to carry them through with their phosphate needs for the entire season. So I have them planted in a raised bed with uh, banana peppers Mm -hmm. and tangerine peppers and basil. So um, the peppers are out of control. I mean, we just have more, <laughs> more peppers than we can eat. You know? Yes, sir. And, and the basil, you know, we have enough pesto made for the next two years. Well, and then you never have too much pesto. It's just now, this time of year, basil is trying to go to flower every time it gets a chance. But uh, uh, yeah, You just pick those off, and they, yeah. keep, they keep growing. But the tomatoes, I mean, I'll have, you know, 50, 75 blossoms on this yep. plant. Yep. And, but not one tomato. It's It just all has to do with nighttime temperatures. You need to plant a bigger variety. Um, I, I have a one of my favorites for big tomatoes, one called Arkansas Traveler. It seems to pay less attention to nighttime temperatures, but all these ones you see here, the extension service talking about, um, uh, these are all very, very nighttime temperature sensitive, and this has been a year when the nighttime temperatures were just too high to set fruit. Like I say, I would almost be willing to bet you that if you go out a week from now and look, you're going to see uh, your first tomato set in a long time because we're back into a good temperature range for uh, the big tomatoes to set fruit. Okay. I mean, my cherry tomatoes and my little plum tomatoes, mm-hmm. man, they they do great. I mean, we're yeah. pulling tomatoes off there all the time. So that tells me they your soil's in good shape, you're planting right, yeah. you have plenty of sun, uh, the problems in your big fruited ones, and that's beyond our control.
Okay. Now, pecan trees. Mm-hmm. Um, two years ago, we got a stick from the Botanical Garden, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> it's and, a good place. you know, we planted it in the ground, and some leaves grew, and, and the tree is growing, but it's not getting any height. How often are you fertilizing, and what are you using? Well, I'm not. I mean, it's no. it kind of planted it out behind my house in a green belt, uh-huh. and I make sure it gets water. Um, I mean, do I need to fertilize it? Absolutely, if you want it to grow. Okay. If you let it grow as Mother Nature it would do, Mother Nature is a whole lot more patient than you and I are, and she doesn't care if it takes 200 years for it to make a big tree. You and I want to see a nice big tree in 20 years, so I would be treating it about like you do the plants in your vegetable garden. I'd be out there okay. spring and fall putting out some good organic dry fertilizer, and when I have a chance, uh, and this is what I do in my own, uh, now that I have a greenhouse at home again, when I'm fertilizing the orchids and things, if I've got a little bit of fertilizer mixed up, uh, when I get through the liquid that I put on those guys, I'm going to go out and put it on a pecan tree, an oak tree, a couple of new cypress trees I've planted. Uh, just uh, you, You'll never hurt them uh, with giving them just a little shot of organic fertilizer every time you have the opportunity. Okay. And you'll and, see uh, a lot more growth out of that tree. I just didn't know if it was the rocky soil or yeah. I'm over on kind of on the west, northwest side. It, so. you know, it's uh, the nice thing about uh, our immediate area, unlike some of the hill country where you just have a shelf of rock, pecan trees need to be able to put down, they put down not a true taproot, but a big bulbous structure underneath. But the good thing about your area and at least part of my ranch is we have a lot of rocks. But in between those rocks, we've got good soil and uh, should be fine with the country there. Okay. Now, um, and not just to dominate uh, your your time here, but you mentioned that about cornmeal uh-huh. controlling oak wilt. How does that work? What does the cornmeal do? Well, cornmeal is not magic, but whole ground cornmeal grows a beneficial fungus, which is called trichoderma. Trichoderma is a very aggressive fungus which takes out damaging fungi, one of Mother Nature's little miracles, in my opinion. Wow. And it will take out, it'll take care, if you ever have a little problem with athlete's foot, put a little cornmeal in your socks. You'll have no more athlete's foot. If you ever fight toenail fungus, don't go to the doctor and get those drugs that screw up your liver. Uh, you can make sort of a slurry and, uh, you know, put your foot in that for an hour or so, uh, an hour a night for about a week. Take off a week, do it a second time, and your your toenail fungus will be gone. It will control brown patch in your yard. Uh, oak wilt is caused by a vascular fungus that plugs up the xylem. Uh, it attacks that, and uh, the tree's not too far gone. It will actually cure oak wilt as well as do a very good job of preventing it. Uh, you can soak it in water and spray it. It'll take out the powdery mildew on the crepe myrtles, black spot on the roses. Uh, cornmeal's not the magic, but trichoderma fungus that grows on the cornmeal is. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Never thought about that. <laughs> Mother Nature uh, is uh, way ahead of us on thinking all these things. Very cool. Well, the sun's coming up. i got to get going, my friend. Good luck. So, uh, Shoot sure. carefully and uh, above all, enjoy. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Certainly Bye. appreciate it. All right, back to the phone lines, and Sid is first. Good morning, Sid. Well, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Well, uh I didn't have a problem. I'm in Kendall County, but I, I've heard about the problem in San Antonio and I think maybe even in uh, Bull Verde about the crickets. Right. Uh, and I just wanted to see if you could give us a little bit of an idea what happened there and and uh, why some of us had a problem and some <laughs> of us didn't. 
You know, crickets are, uh, their life cycle is very cyclical, and I don't think it's really fully understood. Same way with grasshoppers. You always heard about the plague of the locusts from biblical times. Um, even your cicadas, just some years, everything is right to have just an explosion in the population. When the temperature is right, when the uh, moisture is right, when uh, different things happen that suppress the cricket's natural enemies, then you'll just have one year where you have this huge bumper crop of crickets and uh, just is kind of spotty here and there all across the hill country. Some places are just like a coating on the surface of the soil. Some places, like probably your ranch and my ranch, uh, we just see a few of them here and there. I have to say that I personally think that uh, that some of it has to do with things getting out of balance when people have overused pesticides, both natural and mostly synthetic. Uh, they've taken out a lot of the things that would naturally control the crickets. Uh, there's some there's some bacteria in the soil, the same Nosema locustri that controls uh, grasshoppers, uh, controls the crickets very well, and there's so little of that around where people have been using the synthetic fertilizers and all this other stuff. And I think people that are not on the organic program always seem to see a higher incidence of these outbreaks of grasshoppers and crickets and all, but it's um, it, it's a cyclical thing and uh, has a lot more to do with the environment, with the weather, than anything that we have or haven't done. I wish I could be more specific, but that's the best I know. I don't think anybody fully understands. If they did, they would be able to predict which years we were going to have this uh, invasion of crickets, and I've not seen that happen. Everybody reports on it after it happens, but nobody tells us it's coming. There's some baits and some things we could put out you know, that would help control it. In fact, the NOLO bait will help even at this point. But um, unless you, you know, have a lot of real tender plants out there, the crickets are going to be gone pretty shortly here. Well, uh, that was my other part of the question, is I did have a little bit of a grasshopper problem in the spring, and I uh-huh. put out the NOLO. And, uh, in fact, I did it two different times. And uh, I had very little grasshopper problem this year and mm-hmm. i did not have any cricket problem now recently i have seen just a few of them yeah but uh i think the nolo just really did the trick well and you put it out at the the proper way said so nolo it doesn't just you know kill things nolo sickens the grasshoppers and or the crickets when they are young and the in that in, in both cases the uh, like the adult grasshoppers are very cannibalistic. They see a slow-moving, smaller grasshopper. They'll have them for supper along with some things out of your garden. And this is how the the bacteria, Nosema locustri, how it spreads through the population of grasshoppers and why, you know, even when we start seeing some grasshoppers, they're not feeding, they're not causing any damage. So it's all in using the right product, uh, which is going to be sold either under the name of Semispore or NOLO. NOLO is easier for me to remember because it's just an abbreviation of Nosema locustri, which is the bacteria that kills them. But, um, you know, it's having the right material and putting it out at the right time. You did both, and uh, you've certainly suffered the, or suffered, enjoyed the benefits of uh, not having to deal with them. Well, I have another question. It has to do with uh, uh, molds and, and things in, in my raised beds. Okay. 
I have one that I've never seen before. It's a, uh, I guess it's about an inch and a half, two inch round ball, and it's a very brown, furry thing. Uh, what could that be, and uh, is it harmful, or is it good, or is this is this a live creature, or no? It's a mole. Okay. Whenever I water, uh, and and it gets water on it, well, then you see the puff, the 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 spores. Being oh, oh, okay. A, a mold. I'm thought. I thought you were saying mole, M-O-L-E, and I was going to say, I, I've trapped moles in East Texas and other places. We don't have, we just don't have many moles in the hill country, but the mold um, is, they they are a fungi. Some molds are damaging, but very few. Most molds are just uh, uh, part of Mother Nature's way of breaking down dead organic material in the soil they form their their body, what we call their mycelium, uh, puts out uh, chemicals which sort of digest away decaying organic material, and that's where they get the energy to grow. And when it comes time for them to reproduce, then they reproduce by spores, not by seeds. And they have the different moles have many different ways of dispersing those spores, the what we call toadstools, what we call mushrooms. In those cases, the spores form inside that little network of gills underneath that cap. In the case of uh, what we just call the puffballs, they make that just that round, oh gosh, structure is the only way I really know to describe it, that probably has several million little mold spores inside of it. And it releases these when it's stepped on. It releases them when suddenly gets hit with water. Whatever triggers it, it just literally explodes and makes what looks like a little puff of smoke. But what you're actually seeing there are a huge number of the reproductive structures of the mold. In fact, there's, you know, there's so much of it in the air. If you look at the air quality counts that you see, a lot of times, a lot of what we consider, uh, you know, whatever they're measuring when they give you an air quality number, and a lot of cases, it's actually, people always think of pollens, but uh, a lot of that is actually mold spores. They are not harmful in any way. Uh, I wouldn't intentionally inhale a lot of them, but there's very little chance it ever caused any problem, and what they do in the soil is works at breaking down decaying organic material, which is a good thing. So not harmful in any way. You're just you're just seeing a oh, shall we say a highly evolved plant and uh, its method of dispersing, you know, its reproductive structures. Like I say, their fungi don't make seeds, but they make the spores. And you're taking me way back to plant morphology a long, long time ago to talk about exactly what goes on. But they're in the group of moles we call the Basidiomycetes, and they're the ones that actually make a structure, whether it's a round ball, whether it's a cap like a mushroom or a, you know, a toadstool. And uh, you're just simply looking at uh, those little tiny things which will grow into new moles. You will not see them. You will not know that they are there until it comes time for them to reproduce, in which case they put, produce these little round balls. Now, I have some others uh, uh, in a different raised bed that look more like the toadstools, and then I also have some that uh, uh, it looks like uh, it's a mole, but mm-hmm. it, it, it looks like uh, 
an animal had thrown up or something like that. In other words, it's a flat, <laughs> yellow-looking. Yeah, dog vomit bowls, we call that one, yep. And uh, uh, none of these are harmful, I would assume. They aren't. The, the disgusting one you're talking about uh, forms a different sort of structure. We call it a slime mold because uh, it's pretty slimy-looking. And you can get these things, sometimes they will get so dense and they dry out and it makes kind of a crust, and sometimes water doesn't penetrate well. So where you have this disgusting-looking one, sometimes it's good to take your spading fork or, you know, walking stick or golf club or whatever and just kind of break it up a little bit because they're not harmful in that they're not pathogenic to anything growing there, but they are harmful in that they can sort of waterproof the soil in some areas. So uh, in that case, it's sometimes good to break them up a bit. If you ever want to get rid of them, just throw a little dusting sulfur on there because it's a natural fungicide. But uh, none of these things are pathogens. They don't cause disease, so to speak, but they can uh, interfere with water movement and things through your soil occasionally. Uh, are they beneficial? Um, they are beneficial in that they take, you know, physical structure like decaying twigs, decaying roots, things like that, and they break it down a little bit further to where it becomes more of a food for earthworms and for other microbes and for things like uh, things like the mycorrhizal fungi that are directly beneficial to plants. So uh, they are building organic material in the soil, and they are taking organic material that is there and sort of breaking it down into its component parts where it's more available to the other things that will use it to grow. So uh, direct benefit, no soil building, yes. Okay. Well, very good, and I thank you very much. We appreciate you every Saturday. And I'll, I'll take off my, my professor's hat and get back to speaking English now. <laughs> Sid, it's always a pleasure visiting with you. Thank you. You have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Alfred Heathcliff and James, but we start with Alfred. Good morning, Alfred. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Question for you. Okay. Okay. You spoke earlier about putting activated carbon on on a charcoal, whatever the word is, right, to uh, absorb the synthetic fertilizers. Well, uh, around the tree, I have not so much the synthetic fertilizers. Synthetic fertilizers. They're not real good, but I'll talk about that in just a second. What the active carbon is usually used for would be th more things like weed killers, uh, like some of the really toxic insecticides, uh, that sort of thing. Now, synthetic fertilizers, the damage they do is largely creating so much water stress in the plants and burning the organic material out of the soil. But as such... Um, they're not really worth the time or money to get the activated charcoal, which can be pretty expensive. You can remediate the problems that uh, synthetic fertilizers cause with just additional compost, additional organic material. But the, uh, the uh, carbon, the very finely ground carbon, in fact, just about any source of activated carbon, uh, that's for the fellow who had the pest control company that was supposed to go to his neighbors, Ben Ked, said they came over and sprayed all the poison on his yard or things like that. So activated carbon's really good, but uh, don't worry about it in remediating just, uh, you know, synthetic fertilizer. That, just a little bit of extra compost, little molasses, 
uh, other good organic sources of energy are all you need to do to remediate the problem that's caused by synthetic fertilizers. Okay, yeah, because I used a fertilizer with a, a weed killer. Yeah. You know, to protect the lawn or whatever, and uh-huh. I was thinking that that was what was hurting my tree. Well, it it could be, um, uh, and if uh, if there's been a lot of weed killer applied, yes, then some activated carbon will do a lot to help take that out of the soil. But the fertilizer itself is not the problem. It's the herbicide they put in or the insecticide they put in, and uh, in that case, it certainly, um, if you have gotten away from using it, then chances yeah. are the damage has been done. You can help that tree recover uh, through just go to HowardGarrettsDirtDoctor.com and look at sick tree treatment. And um, I, I think would sort of be after the fact, uh, if you have access to some activated charcoal, uh, probably sort of stuff they put in fish aquarium filters uh, is going to exactly be the right. best. And, um, you know, I've been talking to Stuart Frankie. We're going to work at having a uh, micronized, a very, very fine powdered product available one of these days soon. But for now... If you want to put some of the stuff from uh from the aquarium store around, that would probably it would be it'd be a good idea, but I'm gonna be more concerned about uh you know, following Howard Garrett's strict sick tree treatment to help your trees recover from this. I think probably most of the damage has been done. We just need to get the tree healthy again now. Okay. All right. Well that was my main question. And I wanted to make a note. I had a little ponderosa lemon that uh-huh. had three blues before it put out some lemons and now it's done a fourth and a fifth. So now I have <laughs> baseball size lemons, one golf ball size lemon and one uh, peanut size. <laughs> well, it has been confused. Ponderosa is known for being probably the biggest lemon out there. And it's a little thicker skin as compared to the real thin skin of the Myers lemon. But, uh, uh, it, it's like everything else and everybody else has been a little confused by the weather this year. Your, your monstrous one, probably about time to pick and enjoy the smaller ones. We'll just see what the weather does. It is a little more sensitive to cold, of course. So be prepared to cover or protect it if when, not if, but when we get the more severe weather at this point, just keep watering and feeding and doing all the things you're doing. And, uh, <laughs> and and enjoy bragging rights. Be sure and put a ruler up next to that big one when you take a picture of it, and uh, and uh, you know post it on Facebook if you do that kind of thing. At least brag to your neighbors. You've you've earned some bragging rights on that one. Oh, thank you. And not to mention, I have a grapefruit that's the size of a large uh, 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 cantaloupe. <laughs> yeah, it's you I'm know the the one thing and and rose growers and you know people to do this uh, all these people that are trying to get in the flower shows and things like that they go through and they break off ninety eight percent of the bud so that that one bud that's left puts on the plant puts all its energy into making that the perfect flower. Intentionally or otherwise, I think that's probably what's happened with your lemon and with your grapefruit, that Mother Nature decided, hey, we're not going to make a lot of fruit this year, but the ones that we do make, yeah, they're going to be blue ribbon quality. So (laughs) take some pictures. It may be a while before you get these results again. All right, boss. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alfred. Have a great weekend. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Next up is Heathcliff. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Got a question for you. I'm renting a house 
on the far west side. It's a track home, not a very big lawn. Okay. Um, and it's it's I mean this weather is just dead. Everything's dead. It's kind of just grown. I I keep maintenance of mowing it, but it just looks unsightly. And like I said, I'm renting it, and I I don't drive a very big car. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what are some little tips or tricks I can start to do now to keep my lawn my well I guess keep my my homeowner that owns the home happy okay. without putting an unduly amount of time and money in. Okay. It. So you're the actually the guy living in the house. This is not a property that you rent out to somebody else. Correct. Okay. So I don't need Kentucky bluegrass because I'm not going to be there in the summer. Sure. Um, if you want to have a green yard, you can overseed with one of the rye grasses. Um, there is a uh, an annual rye blend out there called Pantera. That, uh, like I say, if you want a green yard, now the downside is if you if you want to do this, you're going to have to uh, water to keep the yard green and healthy. But if you if it's important to you to have some green grass out there for pets or kids or anything else, uh, this is a good time to be putting out the ryegrass seed, which is going to go away in the spring anyway. Um, otherwise. You know, we're getting into the season when most yards turn brown anyway, and maybe all you want to do is just keep it mowed, keep it trimmed, keep it neat looking. And uh, long term, yeah, it would be a good idea to put out some organic fertilizer, but um, I'm not going to tell you it's mandatory. It just kind of depends on what you want to put into it. Now, come next spring, uh, it would be a good idea to fertilize. Uh, It's a good idea, actually, to water a occasionally through the winter not as often as we do in the summer months and if you want to you know encourage uh the grass to come out and look nicer next spring fall fertilizing is very important but um if you're setting money aside if you're being a dave ramsey guy saving for a down payment on the home you own (laughs) that's um, exactly what i'm doing (laughs) okay well i would uh i would probably go to your landlord and say hey I know that, uh, you know, if you really want to maintain this, I would be happy to put out some fertilizer if you would like to buy some. I would be happy to, uh, you know, water regularly if you're going to pay the water bill. Uh, just, you know, what do you want me to do? How much do you want me to maintain this property? And uh, I will do whatever you like, but I either need a credit against my rent check or if you would actually go out and buy me the organic fertilizer to put out, I'll take it from there. But Again, I don't see you're putting a whole lot of money uh, into a place where okay. you don't plan to reside when you're when you're putting that money aside exactly. to have your own place. So again, if you've got uh, you know if you want to have some green grass out there for kids or pets or whatever else, just go look for a little bit. Now, don't go buy the Oregon ryegrass. That's a really cheap ryegrass, and you will hate it if you plant that. But there are some dwarf ryegrasses or some dwarf ryegrass blends that are not expensive, that will give you a beautiful green yard, but this means you're going to have to continue to water it through the winter if you want to keep it that way. Now, I think I'm leaning more towards the fertilizing, so Uh I have my best bets in the spring. What kind of fertilizer do you recommend that I do now to prepare for a good lawn? Just a good organic uh, general product. Medina makes one called Growing Green. Maestro Grow makes one they call Texas Tea. Nature's Creation makes one uh, they call Premium Lawn Food. These are all organics that do not burn, that do not have to be watered in, and they are all top quality. I'd be happy with any of those. And then around what time do I start reseeding in the spring? 
Um, if you if you are looking to seed Bermuda grass, which is a principal grass we plant from seed, the soil needs to be really warm. So it's probably going to be May before we start doing that. Okay. All right, Bob, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. And I will have more than one seminar between now and then on everything you need to know. We had one last Saturday. I wish uh, you had been there where we talked about a lot of this. But uh, watch for our early spring seminar just on everything you need to do in landscape. They're free. They're uh, they're a lot of fun, and I'll sure let you know when it's coming up. In the meantime, just um, every two, three weeks, if we don't get rain, uh, give it a good thorough soaking, and like I say, if you want to put out a bag or two of fertilizer, Medina, Nature's Creation, Grow, those are all top quality companies. Espoma makes a very good one. It's going to be a little more expensive because it's shipped in from a long way away, but uh, any of those I'd be very happy to have. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It is always a pleasure. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right, let's get back to gardening. We're going to talk to James and Michelle. You could be next if you dial soon, 210-599-5555. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Well, uh, you know, probably you you might even have a fire in the stove this morning. It's just uh, our first cool morning, but uh, I'm doing well. I think it's going to be a fantastic weekend. It's the first day in a while that we're not sweating by 8 o'clock in the morning. Yes, sir. I just threw a... A cedar log in there. I like to use those in the morning because they catch fast and burn hot. Well, as long as they're not popping and as uh, long as they're not uh, burning so hot that they're they're hurting what you're burning them in, uh, cedar certainly makes a warm fire, as a lot of firefighters can tell you. We had a little little cedar fire up in the hill country uh, last Tuesday, and thank goodness for our fantastic uh, ladies and gents in the volunteer fire departments got it under control for it uh, did a huge amount of damage. So, yeah, fireplaces uh, are actually, uh, you have to be careful where you burn cedar, but if you got the right place, it certainly produces plenty of warmth. Yeah, I've got some stories for you next time I see you about uh, burning cedar in a fireplace. Um, <laughs> Bake the mortar right out of those bricks if you're not well, careful. That's not appropriate for the, the radio show, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you later about that. <laughs> Sounds um, good. So, Little black seeds we get off the naked ladies. Uh huh. Um, just hold those to spring. I think it's uh, you know Mother Nature's planting them now, so you can uh, if you're wanting them for pot culture. Yeah, I wouldn't be sowing that seed until uh, starts to warm up, or uh, you know even a little before that if you want to put it on a propagating mat or something. But uh, uh, yeah, if you're collecting the seed, I I wouldn't be re-sowing it until. Oh, gosh, end of February, early March, something like that. Okay, well, yeah, we'll do it in spring. Uh, got about three or 400 soil blocks built the other day. And, Good. Uh, seeded them with uh, that Skyfoss. It's a uh, it's a red butterhead. Uh-huh. And uh, a Nevada uh, lettuce we get from Johnny's. Yeah, I know Nevada. I knew Nevada had been one of your favorites, uh, oh, you know, yeah. for a real good, Good long producing lettuce, but tell me about this other one, Skyfoss. She said, "Yeah, it's a red butterhead. It's one of my main go-to lettuces. Uh, you have to use that pelletized seed right in a year. So we had a couple couple of little cans of it we wanted to use up. That stuff is really easy to sow in, oh, in sure. trays, and it uh, it came up in about three or four days." It's amazing how when that weather cools off just a little bit, uh, most of your better lettuces, <laughs> it'll come up uh, 
uh, mighty thick, so to speak. Yeah, I I tried growing lettuce from seed in the in the ground, but that's exercise and uh, well, never mind. Uh, the best way to do lettuce is uh, is load your trays and then do your transplants. Sure, you can keep an eye on them and you grow real good transplants. And so, if you have a small garden, you know you don't want to plant. 25 plants of the same thing. That gives you a chance to get a little variety into the garden, which makes for a better salad, in my opinion. The pelletized seed is, for older folks that maybe can't see as well as they used to, it's just uh, the best thing that the garden and folks have ever come up with. This stuff is really easy to sow. Well, you know, the first thing they tried to do was the seed tapes, and those were a good idea. But you just have so much more versatility with the, with the pelletized seeds. And uh, um, like you say, it just depends on the situation. But in a lot of cases, uh, with fine seed, it certainly makes it a lot easier and uh, for quite a number of reasons. So I think you get a little bit more uniform germination. And like you say, you can see um, you can see the seed and actually know what you're wor- working with. And you don't have you know, five plants come up in the same little tiny spot of soil like you do when you're just trying to put out the seed. Well, I'd rather plant correctly than thin. Yeah. I don't know about you. It's, um, uh, excuse me. I'd just, like to recommend, a, uh, not a lettuce, a, uh, a spinach for you guys. Okay. I've been growing that Bloomsdale long-standing for, uh-huh. God, forever. I, you know, that's what I started with. It's one of the best spinaches you can get it's a it's a wavy leaf yeah yeah savoy as they call it started a few trays of those too and some onions and got some leeks going so we ought to be in good shape if uh, we can get some rain well that's that's the big thing but uh um back to the spinach when when do you plant your spinach because my experience has always been uh, spinach likes a little bit colder than lettuce and the other leafy greens do. Do you think we're cool enough to start with the Bloomsdale, or are you starting that in your seed uh, blocks uh, just like you do your yeah, lettuces and then setting out? Yeah, they all get started in the soil blocks, so you can uh, you can put those trays where it's nice and cool if uh-huh. it's hot again, and you can manipulate. Uh, manipulate the temperature by just moving the trays inside if you're running the air conditioner. Sure, sure. But, you, you know, you you get a three- or four-week start on that spinach, and it's really nice and rooted in by the time you get ready for the garden in November. Well, let me ask you one thing about uh, spinach. It has been my observation, and uh, the Bloomsdale is, you know, one of those wavy leaves, as you call it. It's not a real flat leaf. I have always found that the the flatter leaf uh, leaf spinaches they produce more at one time, but they sure don't last as long into the spring. And so I'm with you. The spinaches that I plant, I like Bloomsdale. I like one called Melody, but I like those with the with the more crenulated leaves, uh, Savoy spinaches as they're called, because for me they just give you a lot longer productive season. Have you found that to be the case? The system that we use with the Bloomsdale is, God, as old as the hills. Right. It's called the cut and come again. Uh-huh. So you you cut the plant down low, but not too low, and then harvest uh, your 
yummy salad spinach or you can cook it. It's really good. Yeah, both ways. Yeah. And then the 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 plant uh, puts on new growth and cut it again. So if you plant them, you know, six, eight inches apart where you can get in there and get them uh, <laughs> and keep them watered and it's just cut and come again. And uh, keep on enjoying. It's one of the healthiest things you can grow. Well, James, I always oh, enjoy man. talking talking to a pro that does it commercially because you guys uh, that are that are deriving part of your income from it, uh, you can't afford to make the mistakes. So we always enjoy hearing your advice and uh, your successes. And it's just as importantly the things that don't work out so the rest of us know what not to do as well as the good things we ought to be doing out there. Okay, well, uh, let it rain. We could sure could use some out here. <laughs> and don't let that cedar fire get out of hand. It, okay. uh, James, is always a pleasure. Uh, thank you, sir. Thanks, Bob. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Michelle's up first, and then Alfred. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Good. I have two questions, and then if I have a little bit of time, if I'm taking up too much time, a third quick question. Okay. Um, so my first question is about sweet potatoes. My sweet potato plants are awesome. They're great. Um, of course, they're huge vines, and I'm ready to pull the sweet potatoes up. They're, I can tell they're quite large. I need to. I can't quite figure out how to cure these. It's the first year I've ever grown sweet potatoes. What's What's your best recommendation to get them ready for eating? Well, um, you know they're ready to eat now. It's uh, what you're concerned about is being able to store them. They're not going to get better, you know, once you harvest them. But um, it's you know I've read uh, to. I've read a couple things that talks about you harvest them, you, you leave them out a couple hours, and then you put them in humidity for like six weeks to make them sweeter. I, you know, I just, that, that's where I'm concerned about. This. They talk about trying to make them sweeter. So I, might, I may be off base on that. I have never really found, maybe somebody that's grown more sweet potatoes will call and tell us their experience, but I've not found that that's really practical, nor is it really necessary. I think the one of the big things that mistakes that people make is after they dig them, they decide to wash them, and in a lot of cases, that just sets up the stage for them not keeping very well. I prefer to just brush them off. You can use a little, oh, like a little whisk broom or one of the little things you you know keep next to the sink. It's not really a scrubber, but something that you can just brush the dirt off. You want to store them dry. You want to store them, you know, where you don't want to store them in just a super dry place. I mean, never put them in a refrigerator or something like that, because that is going to, our modern refrigerators are just so low humidity to make them frost-free that, uh, you know, that it can be damaging to them. But I just, you know, clean, dry, don't stack them one on top of the other. What I use is I've got some of the old plastic crates that they used to deliver soft drinks in, and uh, for potatoes, sweet potatoes, potatoes, and onions all, I just spread them out in there one layer thick, and then I can actually stack crates several deep if I need to. But just, uh, I think being in a fairly dark place is important. Being reasonably cool but not freezing is important. But uh, I've just not found um, that you really improve things uh, by trying to adjust humidity up and down, which is very difficult to do in our climate. Okay. So... They don't, do they have that same issue that potatoes do where they get that green 
skin. They they can. It's not as much of a problem as with your regular red skin potatoes, but uh, I still think it's a good idea to keep them in a dark area. Okay, and so you can eat them right away. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Are you supposed to take them out um, and leave them on top of the dirt for a couple hours in the sun, or do you just take them right <laughs> out of the garden? I just take them out of the garden and. Uh, um, I leave them in the ground. You know, it's been such a dry year, they can remain in the ground for some time. But uh, you don't want to keep them excessively wet uh, or they just don't they don't store as well. But I don't I certainly don't leave them lying around unless I'm, I, I will go ahead and, you know, try to dig everything out of my little fabric bed. And they may lie there for a few minutes, but I don't intentionally leave them out that long or it'll maybe a while before I get back to them. And May have a squirrel decide to help himself, and uh, maybe a hot sunny day, which is not real good for him. Okay, great, because I really want the space back. They do take a lot of space. To yeah. Grow. So, um, my next question is about eggplant. This is the first year I've grown eggplant, and I feel like it's like every insect in the world seems to love eggplant, from mm-hmm. flea beetles to aphids to I don't even know big holes in the leaves. Right. And I'm getting good production. I've grown a couple different varieties. But I just I just can't seem to keep them pest free. Um, I would probably increase your fertilizing, increase your watering. Eggplant likes more water than most people okay. give it, and I think when it stays a little dry, it makes it much more attractive to all the different pests that want to get after it. And when I'm working in the garden, I just literally keep in one hand. I'll keep a little sprayer that spinosad soap. And I probably spray more of it on, certainly more of it on the eggplant than I do on my peppers and tomatoes that are growing in the same area. But um, try a little more water, a little more fertilizer. I think you'll have fewer pests, but uh, keep some of that spinosad soap handy to take care of the ones you see. Okay, definitely I can do that. Do I have time for one other quick question? Go ahead. I, we're close enough that I'm just going to let Alfred start out the next hour because then I can take all the time I need with him. So you've got about a minute here. Okay, great. Perfect. Um, so this year, I did put some lettuce and spinach and stuff out very early, and I covered it with that insulet, mm-hmm. which works pretty well. Things have started to bolt, but I did get a good harvest out of it, and I want to replant. And I still have some things that look pretty good. With the weather that's gotten so much better, it, can I, when I try to remove that insulet, can I just take it off all at once, or do I need to take it off like half days for oh, a no. while? No, you can, take it, you, can, okay. uh, you can take it off all at once. Uh, I, I've never had a problem with sunburn uh, doing that, and uh, no, I, I wouldn't hesitate to pull it off. Just remember that whereas we have used it uh, for protection from wind and from excessive sun, uh, we're going to be moving into the time that we have to worry a little bit about uh, cooler temperatures. So um, what I'll do is I've got it you know, tacked down on both sides, so to speak. I'll just take one side where I can fold it back, but be ready to put it back over if I need to. Okay, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much. You've really helped me. I've been worried about these sweet potatoes. (laughs) I'll look forward to hearing about what all you do with them. We'll talk about that another time. Got to go to news. KTS San Antonio. And Alfred's up first. Good morning. Morning, Bob. A couple of questions, maybe three. I just called earlier, and I had a couple more things I thought about. Uh, Very good. Glad you got back through. Okay. uh, On on blackberries, I've got a a couple that are... uh, bloom all summer but 
the limbs seem to die off, you know. They, they bloom, and then it looks like the whole limb dies. That's normal. Down to the root type of stuff. That's, that's totally normal. That's the way blackberries grow. And that's why we're just any time you have harvested all the blackberries from a cane, you might as well go ahead and cut that cane out because, as I'm sure you've noticed, the blackberries make lots of new canes every year that come yeah. up around the ground. And that's just the way Mother Nature plants that plant to grow. The cane produces, and then it dies back while new canes come out. And um, uh, you're, it's not anything you're doing or failure failing to do. That's that's just the growth habit of uh, blackberries. Okay, yes, because I was uh, I was cutting out the new growth because I thought it was uh, <laughs> you know wrong. And that's <laughs> and my branches are dying. Yeah, that's that's the tough thing is. Especially, and and I have not yet found a thornless blackberry that does well in this area. And I wear good gloves, and I still get stuck from time to time. But uh, it's it, for me, it's easier just as you finish production from the canes, go ahead and cut them out before those new, they're called prima canes, until they really get up and growing. Because the new canes that come out are the ones that will produce the blooms and berries next season. But uh, the old canes, once they have produced, they're done for. You might as well go ahead and take them out because they're going to die anyway. Okay, thank you. Next, spinach and snow peas. Is it the right time? Is it too late for snow peas? I hope not because I'm planning to plant some this week. It's a gamble. Um, Snow peas, edible pod peas, sugar snap peas, they're all closely related, different kinds of peas. And unless we get a real hard winter, cold weather does not hurt the plants. And I say plants, many of them are vining, some of them are bushing. But once we start getting into regular frost, then they stop producing. The frost, the cold weather damages the blooms and the developing peas, but the uh, the vines or bushes themselves continue to grow. So we plant those seeds in the fall, hoping for a long fall with a chance to produce some uh, edible stuff before it gets really cold. Many times you can hold the vines through the winter or you can plant additional seeds in, um, I usually plant some more right around uh, New Year's Day sometime in that time frame for my spring, spring production. But And I never use the word normal when I talk about Texas weather, but if we have a typical winter, uh, it won't get started until a little later. Last year we had that unexpected, very early, very hard freeze. And that set back a lot of production from the snow peas. But I would get them in as quickly as you can. And then let's just trust that October and November will stay relatively mild. And we'll get a reasonable number of peas before uh, the more severe cold type weather, which we may or may, may not have. But when we have it, it's normally January. And that's still two and a half months away. So chance to make a you know at least a lot of good edible pod peas. Okay. Okay. And now, if Mother Nature throws us a curveball, hey, you lost $1.98 or whatever you paid for that package of seed, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's I'm not really a big it. deal. I've got a uh, one of those trellises for my tomatoes, and yeah. it's just empty, and it's bugging me, so I want to put something <laughs> there. <laughs> that would be a good choice. Right. Okay. Now, this one, I've got a bunch of corn stalks coming out under my plants and my trees. Now, how they got there is only one way, right? And my, my from birds, right? And my wife is saying that you can't eat those if they were to, you know, come out to have a uh, corn cob on them. Uh huh. You should not eat them yeah. because they were 
brought there by birds. <laughs> I uh, In this case, you know, normally to be on the safe side, I will take the lady's side, but uh, your wife is not correct in this case now. <laughs> I will tell you that the chances of getting corn produced at this time of year are pretty minimal, and uh, she, I would have to agree with her if she, if she said, hey, Alfred, you're wasting your time doing this, and I tell you she's probably right. But there's nothing wrong with the fact that the birds scattered the seed around, and I think what you're probably looking at is more likely sorghum or maize or milo, something like that, rather than corn. They're all in the same family. But if you happen to get some ears of corn, you just eat them, enjoy them, and uh, tell her if she chooses to let you have them all, that's okay. <laughs> I was born and raised on a farm. I just had to <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to think twice if I do get a corn ear. Well, okay. and I hope you don't get too bruised from the beating that you're going to get as soon as the uh, as soon as you hang up the phone. So you guys <laughs> sounds like a happy family. I'm glad for you, Alfred. You guys have a great uh, Saturday. All right, Bob. You Thank too. you so Bye-bye. much. Bye. <laughs> I just love these, love these little, uh, these little disputes. It's it's always funny when I'm talking to somebody, be it the man or the lady, and uh, there's this little disagreement as to who's right, and I'll tell them what I know to be the right answer, and the answer they give me back is one of two things. It's uh, I told her so, or are you sure? And if they tell me, are you sure, I know already that they were on the wrong side of that one. Uh, let's keep going here. Carolyn is up next. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Oh, good morning. I uh, woke up this morning in Fort Worth right. to about 37 degrees, which wasn't predicted. Right. And I'm wondering about the lime tree in the pot. It's loaded with little limes, and I'm wondering if it's when I need to take it in. Did you get any frost along with the chill, or was it just cool weather and wind? I don't, I don't think so. I looked outside. I didn't think there was any frost. I don't think I don't uh, think your lime's damaged at all. I uh, sounds like you have the same weathermen we do that you know just kind of pull the forecast out of a hat and I don't know where they yeah, come up I, with their numbers, but not, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, know, I think I it's about time. Yeah, about time to bring them in anyway, but I, I doubt if they're about damaged. About time to put them in? Okay. All right, because I don't want to lose those limes that I have on there. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, uh, you know, that they are damaged at 37 degrees as long as the tree didn't get frosted. But uh, um, I would I would either keep some insulate handy. It's just we don't know. Uh, next 10 days look like they're going to be back to more typical weather so if you want to leave them out you can if you have a good place for them indoors and it just takes a lot of the worry out of it so i'm afraid i'm gonna have to put the monkey on your back if there are a lot of trouble to move in i'd rather not be taken by surprise and there are a lot of things going into my greenhouse now before they really need to go in just uh, if i get busy if i don't get home you know to read some hour, there are just a lot of reasons that i won't have to deal with it at the last minute but uh, this is Texas, and the weather, you know, obviously fools the weatherman is along with all of us. Right, right. Uh, okay, the other one, I, and I've been thinking about this, I bought some of that spinosad soap, but when I looked at the directions, it said mix seven ounces per gallon. I've never had to mix that much of anything per gallon. Well, so I thought, it's, yeah, the soaps, 
Um, the soaps you do need to use a little more, but uh, here's the thing. You know, I don't normally put out the spinosad soap in a hose-in sprayer, and seven ounces per gallon, that's, you know, that's coming down to about three tablespoons per quart. And so that's really not all that unreasonable. Uh, and a quart sprayer for me, you know, that may last a month or two unless I'm right in the middle of fighting the stink bugs. Uh, I don't make it quite that strong, but it is going to be one of the one of the things you're going to be mixing a little bit more concentrated. But, boy, don't mix it up at a gallon at a time. Mix it up at a quart. Uh, at a time, and uh, at a quart sprayer, three tablespoons isn't all that much. Oh, okay, because that's pretty expensive when you go seven ounces per gallon. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I just, uh, uh, I, I was going to use it on my eggplant because I had terrible trouble with eggplant sure. this summer, and then all of a sudden it's great, and now it's starting to look like it has <laughs> little dry, dry lines in it, which I didn't have. I had beautiful eggplant. I probably had 15 of them on that plant last week. Uh-huh. And now I'm seeing that it's having a little bit of this, uh, I don't know, I call them dry streaks. It almost looks like scarring or something on them. Well, what uh-huh. you're and probably I, looking at is the fact they got a little dry, then got plenty of moisture, and those are, you know, in effect, stretch marks. Uh, in a tomato, they would actually split. And uh, I think that's probably just going from being dry to having... Uh, you know, a surplus of moisture. I doubt if it's really may affect the texture slightly, but I think you're still going to get very good eggplant. But um, what I would tell you is, you know, again, rarely, I can't think really a single time that I have ever felt like I needed to get out there with the hose in sprayer to spray down a whole crop. I, I literally just use the spinosad soap as a spot treatment and uh, just a one-quart bottle will go for weeks for me. So you're not mixing up very much of it at a time, and that, that little thing of concentrate, that's probably going to last you a couple of years, even mixing more concentrated because you just don't use that much at one time. Okay, and, and you can mix it ahead of time and, yes. and leave it in that quart bottle. Then. If you're going to mix it ahead of time, I would mix it with distilled water uh, just to be on oh, the safe okay. side. Um I know that my water is full of every kind of mineral you can imagine. I don't know about yours. Are you on city water or are you on well water? I'm on city water, but I I could uh, I, I I can put it in, in one of those filters. You know, I have a filter on my sink and then sure. I have a filter that I refilter it in the refrigerator to drink. Yeah, so I would I would do that or ninety eight cents <laughs> a gallon is pretty cheap for distilled water. I don't want the chlorine and the chloramines and the things that are in city water reacting okay. with uh, with the spinosad because spinosad's a natural, you know, bacterial product. So um, if I'm going to try to store it, if I'm going to mix it and use it, then uh, I'm not going to worry too much about it. But where I want to store it, I want to use, uh, uh, if you have reverse osmosis water, that is basically the same as distilled, and it'd probably be just fine. Okay, I'll buy the distilled. I do have rainwater in gallons that I collect. Oh, well, that'll work just as well, too. Okay. Then the other thing, that holly tree I called you about, that that Nellyar Stevens holly. Yeah. That was, uh, the berries were all shriveled. Right. Well, the uh, the root flare was uncovered, and uh, it it just, these little twigs on it are, are just, all the leaves are turning brown. I've been treating it with the... Super Thrive, uh, three times a week I've been putting maybe a, you know, mixing a quart of water and putting sure. Super Thrive on it. But uh, when I scratch the bark of the big big trunk and the bigger stems, 
it, they're just as green as they can be, but the rest of the leaves just drying up, you know, drying up. Are you seeing any what, you seeing any new leaves at all on it? Oh no, they don't make leaves. I don't think at this time anyway. Well, yeah, it's I, I think you're overdoing it with the Super Thrive. I don't think you uh, um, it would be fine to mix it up periodically, spray the trunk, dump what you have left over um, maybe three times a month. I don't think you're going to increase your chances of success. I think you're you're a little strong. Uh, certainly doesn't hurt anything. But uh, if it's going to come out, you know, using your Super Thrive, your carrot juice, whatever, uh, two, three times a month is all that you really need to do. Just, you know, watch very carefully. Obviously, something has really damaged the root system, so you want to apply some moisture to the trunk, to the limbs and things, because uh, even with compromised roots, it's going to take up a lot of moisture directly through the soft bark. But uh, um, it's it's kind of going to be a matter of wait and see at this point. That's what I was thinking, but I know that the... The trunk and all is all still green, but mm-hmm. it's just the little little ones, the little twigs where the where the uh, leaves are on. Those are just I know those aren't going to make it where the dried up berries. And work. that's what tells aren't. me that you've had a lot of root damage from one thing or another. So let's just Can't try to imagine. You know, it's yeah. just right there with the other plants, and you know, there's just no reason for the root damage. This this uh, you know. I don't know what could have caused the root yeah, damage. There's no reason it's apparent to us, but you know, obviously something got after it. Let's just try to keep it alive until it's time for it to put on some new growth. I'm going to feel very relieved when I start seeing uh, a little bit of new growth. When we get into early, late winter, early spring, I'm probably going to tell you to cut it back by maybe a third to concentrate that little hormone that makes the new buds break and come out. But for now, just keep on doing what you're doing. Okay, and then the other thing is I've, I've figured out what my fern is, that I and I need to transplant a fern, and I think it's a lady fern. I talked to you about it about a month ago, okay. and I'm wondering if this is the time to transplant it. They're not all dried up. Uh, they're still green, mm-hmm. but I know that uh, the neighbor had given me one little, one little uh, look like a little acorn or whatever it grows on, and and it's just multiplied by you know just multiplied you know well and so I'm wanting to transplant it to another place. It's it's near that holly tree. Yeah, is where it is. I mm-hmm. would go ahead and transplant it. It's in its semi-dormant season, so this is probably uh, the best time to do it and water in uh, with some garret juice or something, and then just you know don't water till that soil's dry an inch or so deep. And who knows what Mother Nature's going to do? But yeah, I think if it's uh, in need of repotting, in need of dividing, go right ahead. Well, it's it, it's outside because I'm not potting yeah. it. It's not potted inside. It's right. Uh, outside, I couldn't believe that one little thing he gave me uh, made this much fern. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just huge. It's it's multiplied uh, twenty times. You know, from what the one little. Well, it's little, obviously uh, happy where it's growing. So whatever you're well, doing, just keep on doing it. Next to the, it's next to the holly, and the holly's not happy, so I don't know what the problem is. Okay, well, thank you. I'll just leave the holly in. Hi. I'm not going to dig it out or anything, and nope. hope, hopefully with the green trunk like that that maybe it'll lose its uh, leaves that it's, you know, the damaged one and right. uh, grow some new 
grow some new leaves. Okay, thank you very much. You're sure welcome, Carolyn. We'll talk again. All right, and want to remind you that uh, our free seminar this morning, everything you ever want to know about winter color, if you want to have just an absolutely beautiful flower show this winter, pansies, Johnny Jump Up, stock, calendulas, uh, oh, dianthus, petunias, ornamental kale and cabbage, cyclamen, anyway, all you need to know about planting and growing those things extremely well. Free charge, 945 this morning over at Shades of Green. And uh, have a lot of fun. I'll show you some neat tools and uh, and just tell you how to calculate what you need. This morning's seminar is just all about wintertime annual color. And I certainly look forward to seeing you and helping you with that. Right now, I look forward to talking to Joyce. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Mr. Bob. How are you today? Oh, well, well, well. I went out of Shades of Green last week to get some insulate. Uh-huh. And in cruising around, I found two plants that I haven't seen or had in years. And so, of course, I can't resist that kind of thing. <laughs> One is that little heart-shaped Hoya uh-huh. cutting, which I, which will be a work in progress. Right. And I can hardly wait for that to start up. I had one years ago and then lost it in a freeze. So right. That's fun. The other one that I wanted to know about is uh, one that I had, and I lost it in about two years, so I need 101 on Coprosma. I think they are such attractive plants, and I want to do better this time. Well, you know, they are, I won't call them annuals because they can be maintained for a number of years, but uh, you've got to protect them from freezing. You've got to give them a good, strong, I think ideally, morning sun, afternoon shade, and just all the all the things you would normally do. Water a little organic fertilizer every couple of weeks. But coprosma is just not a permanent plant. If you grow it well for two or three years, take some cuttings, start some fresh plants, and just kind of keep rotating your stock, kind of keep renewing your stock because i in san antonio i really don't know anyone who goes grows coprosma successfully year after year after year it's a beautiful plant but what i would classify it as a short-lived annual it's kind of like dusty miller's kind of like a number of things that uh two three years that's pretty much what you expect from it artemisia is the same way and like i say you can maintain it by simply taking some cuttings but uh don't beat yourself up for only having it last for a couple of years because that's more the standard in this area than uh, than having one that just lives for a long, long time. Okay. Uh, take cuttings, but that would be what? In the spring and in perlite? Just yeah. regular? Spring, early summer. Roots very easily in perlite. Okay. So that's how you can keep it going. Okay. Yeah. They, they look artificial. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a beautiful, shiny leaf, and uh, uh, that the reddish color one is by far the prettiest one to me yeah, that's but it's the one i got yeah it looks almost like just a polished plastic but it's not it does that's exactly what it looks like okay well i didn't know the cutting part that's that's fine because that's exactly what happened to the one i had yeah. many years ago i i saw it at a grocery store didn't even know what it was you rescued and, it rather than purchased it you yeah, might say I but took the, it home and as i say it lasted about two years yeah. but in in other words it really should ma- be maintained as a pot plant pot that's plant. what i would recommend and just don't sex, set your expectations too high this is not one that you pass down from generation to generation it's one that as long as you okay. want to continue, you can propagate and make fresh cuttings or plants. So most people just get a new pot every now and then, but uh, yeah, it's, okay. it's fun and it's easy you to propagate. It very often. I mean, I, it's been ages. Uh, it comes out of Southern California, which tells you something about the climate it likes. And 
Uh, it seems like the holiday season, a lot of people like to use them in their holiday decorating just as a beautiful, shiny, you know, interesting colored foliage. But uh, this is getting to be the time of year we start seeing them. By springtime, uh, it'll be another six months before they're available again. Okay. Okay, yeah, it does look artificial. The other thing I wanted to ask about is plumbago. I've had plumbago for years and years, and it's spread over mm-hmm. a big area and gotten in the shade. So I want to try transplanting some of that because I have nothing to lose. Is that springtime best yes. or, or fall? Yeah, springtime best. Uh, let it get through the winter. Some years they freeze back, some years yeah. not. But just as those buds start to swell to make it spring uh, leaf foliage growth, that's the time to dig, divide, transplant, whatever you want to do with it. It's it's a great plant, and I love, you know, about six, eight years ago, they came out with that new darker blue strain, but uh, Roberta maintains a big uh, bed of uh, beautiful pure white in part of part of her white garden, so I'm I'm a big fan of plumbago. It's just a tough, hardy, good perennial for this area. Yeah, this is the plain old light blue, which yeah. is lovely and has just spread and I've had mm-hmm. for many years. Okay, the creeping germander, I bought one of those. The gentleman that took over uh, the, the Austin show, that he talks about creeping germander and likes it very much as a ground cover in uh, sunny, dry areas. I've never heard you mention it much. Does it not do particularly well? I bought one because I want to give it a try. It takes a lot of attention. You know, ground covers, people with busy lives, uh, somebody that has a full-time gardener or who is able to put a lot of time into their gardening will do well with Germander. Most of us will forget about it and have problems with it. But it's... uh, What's the secret? I mean, what are you supposed to do for it? Yeah, you're supposed to never, ever let it get dry. You're supposed to always have it in soil that drains well. And it's one of those things you you don't want to water too frequently and you want to have good enough drainage that, uh, you know, if we have a prolonged rainy spell, whatever that is, we've all forgotten what that looks like. But uh, you grow it about like you would lavender. It wants soil that drains perfectly. It wants a good bright spot. And um, it's just you can't go out of town for two weeks and forget about it. And if you get carried away with your watering, it won't do well for you. So if you grow it about like you would lavender, uh, you will be successful with it. But as you know, if you've ever grown lavender, it's sort of a high-maintenance crop. Well, I never wanted to fool with that. So <laughs> this never-get-dry thing is going to be a problem. Right. So it probably is not going to. But anyway, we'll give it a shot. It's, it's a tough, hardy plant, but it, it requires a good deal of maintenance. You can't neglect it or... Once it starts having problems, it's hard to turn it around. Again, very much like lavender or even rosemary. Once they start down, it's very hard to revive them. So it's just, it just takes some good, close attention that uh, some folks have time to do and some folks get too busy to do. Or some folks just don't do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being as nice as I possibly can. <laughs> That's it. You're very, very nice. <laughs> Bob, on a, a green and white plant, I only know it by the name Redbird. A friend gave uh-huh. me, and it's grown well. Does that name ring with you? Does oh, yeah. It's uh, it's actually in the Euphorbia family. Its botanical name is Petalanthus, P-E-D-I-L-A-N-T-H-U-S. Um, and the little, a lot of people, you know, there's a... Well, there's several forms of it out now. The prettiest one, in my opinion, is the green and white form, and it will have some pink if it's getting lots of sunlight, and periodically it makes little red flowers that look just like little tiny, tiny red birds, which is where the name comes from. But uh, 
Uh, lots of light, protect it from freezing, and it's another one of those that will be with you for many years. Yes, okay, good. Now, I did not bring it in, and it looks kind of uh, like it didn't like it, but that could be wind and drought, too, because it's in a pretty small pot. So as soon as the show's over, I'll go check that one out. You do that, and, uh, yeah, it's this this cold, dry wind it made a lot of things unhappy, but your red bird's a tough, hardy plant. Do not let it freeze, uh, but this uh, little first cold front of the season has not done permanent damage to it. Okay, one last quick question, and that is, is brown turkey fig and Texas ever-bearing fig, is that two names for the same plant? Pretty much so. Uh, there are people who will tell you that there is some difference, that brown turkey is a bigger fig, and uh, I grew up calling them two different plants, but uh, in reality, they're so similar. I, nowadays, uh, you may buy the same plant under either name. Uh, well, I kind of thought that, that the way I hear it, one would say one and the other, and then sometimes both. And so I kind of thought that might be the case. Well, okay. years ago, Alton Graham and I sold it as two separate varieties. But since that time, um, I'm I'm pretty sure it's the same thing. I see. Okay. Well, be sure and give your girls and boy an extra hug. And uh, thank you very much, Bob. Always a pleasure, Joyce. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. And Lee, it's your turn. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Bob? I'm doing well, thank you. How about you today? Doing well. Good. Uh, Luckily, my wife is still asleep, so you won't hear in the background. (laughs) I told you so whenever I ask you my question. Uh, Well, we we all have been down that road. I I will look forward to very quietly helping you through whatever it is. (laughs) Okay. We've had a shrimp plant for about four years on our back right on the edge of our back patio. Okay. It's about a little two-foot-wide garden. Uh, I don't know, our flower bed, you know, bordering mm-hmm. the patio. And it's wanting to take over the patio and crawl in the house. And uh, she doesn't want me, to, in the spring, she doesn't want me to, to uh, cut it back because it might bother the hummingbirds and the bees and the same thing in the summer. And right now she doesn't want me to cut it back because... It might freeze, and it might have new growth, and it might kill it. So before it comes in the house, when would you suggest it be cut back, and how much? Okay, now tell me, is this the one with the kind of reddish coral-colored flowers? Correct. Uh Okay, Uh, no reason it needs to come in the house. That plant is cold-hardy, at least down into the low 20s, so um, Uh you can trim just to make it more manageable, uh, it's not the time of year to give it a real heavy pruning because if you prune it heavily, you stimulate a lot of new growth, and that's not going to be as compact and you know as good quality as it would be uh, in the spring. You just probably what you need to do is go through and just thin it out about the end of February, first of March, and get it putting on some new foliage. But uh, um, I, I, you know, we've got it growing in ground as a bedding plant and i don't remember it's really having frozen back maybe once out of the last 10 years so in a pot yeah if we're going to have an 18 degree night you probably need to bring it in but man leave it outside you know 90 percent of the time it's going to do just fine that's just a lot of additional work and just be no, kind of it's in the ground oh it's in the ground i'm sorry i thought you said before it's you brought it in over there. no it's trying to 
is growing on the patio and uh-huh. heading this way. I'm afraid it's going to start <laughs> grow, moving in the house. Well, uh, do this when I mean, you I mean, when you prune. Put in a half to get the pat- back to the edge of the patio. Sure. Um, I it's going to do. It's going to look nicer long term if it does get pruned. I would not do it at this time of year except just to be able to get around it. The problem is when you prune, you stimulate new growth, and that new growth takes a while to harden off where it's ready for the freezes. So I don't recommend pruning much of anything at this time of the year other than just, you know, a light trim just to make it a little bit more manageable. Now, in the early spring, we're talking into February 1st of March, I probably would give it not just a complete haircut. I think you'll probably go through and totally remove some of the limbs that are coming out really long. Uh, At the same time, you're not going to mess with the little shorter limbs that are going to still have plenty of flowers for the hummingbirds and everything. But it's just it's kind of a matter of go through and give it a heavy thinning. But late February, early March is going to be the time to do it. And if you do it very carefully, maybe she won't even notice what you've done. Right. Oh, she'll notice. <laughs> well, I just just keep both sides happy. Keep the hummingbirds happy by not. Uh, I mean, a lot of times, a lot of people will just basically cut it back to four or five inches tall. It will come back out very quickly. The other way to address that is to have it growing in two different places, and then you have one that you give it that heavy cutting back, leave the other one untouched so the hummingbird's plenty to have, plenty to go to, and then when the first one really comes out and starts blooming again, then you can give the other one its real heavy pruning back. But uh, where you've just got one, you're just going to have to kind of settle for thinning it back periodically just to, as you say, keep it from taking over all the property. Right. One more question. I have a, uh, well, it's a... Long story I won't go into, but I bought a b- bunch of uh, plastic lattice work and just mm-hmm. used some of it up. And uh, I have one of the four by eight sheets that I I put it four feet high and eight feet long okay. out in my garden near my tomatoes. I live up here on one of these rock mountains and uh-huh. have three to six inches of soil, so it's hard to stake my tomatoes. Right and to keep them from blowing over. So I use this for an extra reinforcement uh, along with the cages. And uh, so the tomatoes do real well on the sunny side. On the other side, uh, I, I was going to ask you what what would uh, be a vegetable that would grow good on – it gets – you know, it's on the side. Of, it's four foot high, and mm-hmm. so I have a little bit of – little bit of shade on that side okay well this uh, this time of year i'd yeah i'd this time of year i think lettuces are one of the things that will do without quite as much sun as say broccoli or cauliflower are going to require so uh uh lettuces would be my primary choice bok choy would probably do okay there um really any of the greens will do with partials Sun, whereas uh, things like your root crops as well as your coal crops, the broccoli and cauliflower, they pretty much want full sun. So uh, lettuces are going to be the single, and there are lots of choices. Those are going to be the single thing that I think will do best on the shadier side. And spinach would also do fairly well. Yeah, spinach is going to have to move it out where it gets a little bit more sun. 
kale will do okay with a little bit more shade as well. Okay, great. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate you and have a wonderful day. You do the same, Lee. Thank you. Bye. All right. Very good timing because we've got about four minutes to talk to Patrick here. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Uh, I got three quick questions for okay. you. Number one, I live out in the Bolverde area and I'm looking for the best uh, soil because I've got a big garden that I need to fill. Uh, my wife's the gardener. I'm the filler. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, Fertile Gardens is over way over on uh, uh, 1604. I was wondering if you would recommend a soil provider over here in the Bolverde area. Well, uh, again, Fertile Gardens is no longer. Fertile Gardens is now, uh, what used to be Fertile Gardens, is now one of the Stone and Soil Depot locations. And uh, Stone and Soil Depot is doing a very good job. And they have a location uh, actually not that far from you in Bolverde. They're uh, uh, Highway uh, on 281, uh, just a little ways inside State Highway 46. And they deliver to Bolverde all the time. Now, um are you filling a new garden? Are you improving a garden that's there? What are you going to use this soil for? Well, we put a bunch of those butter blocks in mm-hmm. to uh, close off the end of our driveway. Okay. And the, it's 40 by 3 by 36. Okay. So I'm going to put gravel at the bottom of the first uh-huh. uh, row of stones and then a weed blocker. Uh, on there, and then I'm going to put the dirt on top of that, and she's going to put a bunch of uh, vegetables and uh, ornamentals in there. Well, I would skip the weed block. I think you're going to find that won't really serve any purpose. Uh, You're going to have enough soil on top that it's going to suppress anything the weed block would suppress, but um, it's... I just didn't want the the soil to wash down through the gravel, so I put the gravel down there so it'll, it'll drain. That's that's not going to be a problem. Yeah, it's okay. uh, um, I, I just the weed block fabrics uh, tend to inhibit root growth, and uh, I want those roots growing down as deep as possible. Um, your soil is, uh, I would go with uh, their garden soil. They have many different grades of soil, and I would go with their garden mix. I would, you know, be prepared for the next two years. You're probably going to add a little bit of compost uh, because the soil is going to settle a bit. But uh, I'm, I'm going to send you to uh, uh, Stone and Soil. It's going to be real convenient to you, and I think they're producing about the best soil, uh, certainly, that you'll find in your area. But it's going to get better over the next couple of years. Uh, anybody that puts new soil out there, um, it just it takes a little while for it to mellow out and be prepared to add some uh, more compost to it. But that's what I would be doing there. Okay, second question is on my peach trees. Uh, when do I fertilize them, and when do I trim them? Fertilize them. Fertilize them now, um, and do your pruning as soon as uh, the leaves are off. In fact, once the leaves are off, you can do it any time uh, up until early February. But I, I'd go ahead and fertilize now. I'd probably plan on fertilizing again in February. And the fertilizer? Any good organic time. product. Medina's Growing Green. Uh, Maestro Grows, uh, um, they make a good one they call Texas Tea. Uh, Nature's Creation makes a real good one that they call premium lawn food. All of those would, would certainly work in my garden. I've got a, a bag that I bought at Fanix that they uh-huh. gave me for evergreens for my magnolia tree. And oh, my that's magnolia, fine. My, my little gem is just doing so well. Yeah, that'll work fine in your vegetable garden or on your peaches, either one. 
right now I get to push that button and say good morning, Howard Garrett. Well, good morning. Is everybody enjoying this roller coaster weather down there? <laughs> I tell you what, looking at storms in the northeast, snow in the Midwest, fires in California, I, I'll take roller coaster any time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been kind of crazy, but I tell you what, it feels good to finally get a, a little bit of cool weather. Well, it was strange. It cooled off here, and it was just great. And then I got up one morning, and it was all hot and uh, humid and sticky again. And then <laughs> dropped, dropped again. We uh, we were outside all day yesterday, and it was it was cold and very yep. windy here. Same way here. It was not not a pleasant day to be out. But uh, today looks like it's going to be kind of right in the middle. There's just a little yep. bit of a breeze, and we're very comfortable down here this morning. How about you guys? No, it's it's nice and it's good. I got a bunch of stuff to uh, do. Got got some guys coming over. I got a huge pile of shredded tree trimmings. We did took down a uh, sure the neighbors actually did took down a big tree that was getting uh, pretty dangerous leaning over our house and uh, <laughs> they didn't have place for it. So I I inherited all their mulch and putting it back in the bamboo where we've you know been building it up to. Uh, eliminate the erosion problems, and I think this this big pile is going to totally end my uh, my project back there. Well, it's just uh, it's it's all that exercise. I hate to call it work because it has a good outcome, but it it requires a lot of exercise to move it from point A to point B. Yeah, the the guys are helping me with it. Have these great big lightweight kind of snow shovels, and uh-huh. I hadn't thought of that uh, for the. Uh, Shredded tree trimmings, but it really works well, especially since it's on the concrete surface, and it really makes it go pretty fast. Oh, yeah. Well, I think they call them a grain shovel if you're ever looking to buy it, and uh, they're they're great. when what it is. Yeah, and, and when it's in a pile, I like just a, kind of a lightweight, the old pitchfork, not the digging fork, but that's yeah. what yeah. I've always used. But on concrete, yeah. <laughs> That big old shovel, you you can get enough to make it worthwhile. One of those scoops holds about as much as ten scoops with uh, with a regular shovel. So sounds like you got the right equipment to do the job. Yeah, and Nellie and uh, Tater have a, a lifelong supply of <laughs> sticks and pieces of bark that you own. I tell you, our dogs just love to run and just just go full force, just dive into a pile of material like that and the problem is they uh of course roberta's long hair golden is the worst far worse than the labs but it's just amazing how much they can bring inside and uh she's got a new little sort of water feature in her yard and she keeps saying gee i wonder how all this mulch is getting getting into the water feature could it possibly be on some dog paws but you know we love them they but I don't know why anybody needs a comedy channel when you have animals. They just are so much entertainment. Well, Nellie's latest thing is that she loves the smell of worms, earthworms, especially if they're dead and they've crawled out and died on the uh, pavement. She will rub in them on one side <laughs> of her neck and then the other. She just thinks that's the best smell of all. I wrote down, I've been thing about doing a piece of art. In fact, it was one of the first ones I ever conceived and uh, came up with a design. I was going to write quotes that I like across one direction and then another direction. I had done it on a small scale, and it looks pretty cool. I bet. We've got a pretty cool book that goes through some of the most famous quotes through the years.
doing myself the other day, and it's about Nellie. She turned her head sideways, and I knew that that helped her understand. I, 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 she turned her head sideways, and I know that that helped her with her understanding, but of what? <laughs> I. That's a very accurate observational quote, so to speak. Well, that sounds like. It sounds like fun. I, you know, there's just so many people between Winston Churchill, Mark Twain, Will Rogers, even Abraham Lincoln. I love one of his quotes that I'm reminded with some of the people that I know, but I think it was uh, Abraham Lincoln said of one of his generals said he can cram the largest number of words into the smallest idea of any man I've ever known. And (laughs) <laughs> with some of our extension agents, I think that's just highly appropriate. But we, we, we perhaps should not go there since you face the same thing in Dallas. But you mentioned something interesting. Why did the earthworms crawl out on the surface and die? What, what, uh, you know, sometimes I know it's moisture in the soil, but there are times that I just can't figure out why they're doing it. Well, it's a curious thing because, you know, obviously we don't have any toxic anything pushing them out of mm-hmm. the ground here. Um, the lightning storms are probably the answer. Really? It's uh, the only thing I can figure out. The, the lightning, you know, we've had some pretty good lightning. And poor little Tater, he's just get, gotten terrified of yeah. of lightning. But even though I didn't remember, you know, any hitting very close to the house being loud enough to do that, uh, with it all in the air and crackling around, maybe there's enough that gets into the ground that creates enough uh you know, electricity vibration or whatever to cause that to, to happen. We've we've talked in the past about uh, diesel engines and and vibrations mm-hmm. and that sort of thing creating that. And I've I've always suspected that that could be part of it, but we haven't had any real loud things like that going on. So the only thing that I could come up with this time is lightning you know we had a guy there was a guy in the news and i don't know if it was here or if it was a, a national news so y'all may have seen it too a guy got hit by lightning right. and knocked it knocked out cold Did you see that yeah it looked like on a lake shore or something like that and thank he goodness he his dogs yeah and it hit him and it just looked like a little flash down at his ankle and boy it not took him to the ground and he was he was basically dead he was out and uh, somebody saw it. They had the whole thing on on film, right? On video, and people stopped, gave him CPR, and I think uh, he survived, and he's okay. But uh, it, you forget about how dangerous and powerful that stuff is sometimes until it happens to some somebody you know or yourself, or you see a, a video of it like that. Well, we. But I got a feeling that's what it was. I that's that's a real interesting thought because there is a tremendous charge moves through the earth in a in a big lightning strike. Of course, lightning bolts can be relatively low energy or very high energy. But right. I remember, you know, Roberta and uh, her husband had a lightning strike a tree near his shop, and it actually he's got lightning rods on his shop just like they do on their home. But that enough energy moved through the ground that it literally blew the plugs up out of the concrete floor of his shop. So I just can't imagine how much charge goes through the soil like that and how it must affect things living in the soil. Yeah, I guess it could probably hit uh, fairly far away and move through the trees Mm -hmm. because the tree's roots are all touching and connected, and maybe it can just move from tree to tree that way and not be enough to, to hurt the tree, but be enough vibration, enough electrical 
uh, energy to to make the worm say, so I, I need to get away from that. <laughs> I, that's, you know, a real interesting thought. You know, that would make a good column for you sometime talking about lightning. And uh, if, if you aren't totally familiar with it, get with one of the uh, company I've always used is called Bonded Lightning Protection. They do a great job. But I think a lot of people don't realize how important it, that can be to protect a big tree. I mean, every year I talk to people who have either had trees damaged or destroyed by lightning. And tree can be protected by lightning rods just like a house or other structure can. Oh, yeah, sure. Now we, <clears throat> we keep talking about it, but I don't think unless the uh, officer over there in Weatherford has done it now. Yeah. I haven't been able to come up with any help for him to get it done on the big pecan, but maybe he has. I need to look into that again. Does bonded is bonded lighting protection in San Antonio? No, they are somewhere. I know they do work in San Antonio, but uh, and I'd have to go back and look. They're they're somewhere between San Antonio and Dallas. I know they cover a pretty large area because they've done they put the lightning protection on my home and my barn and when we built our new groundwater district office because it's kind of sitting out in the open uh i my actually out of my own pocket i said you know even if i have to pay for it we're going to have lightning protection on this building and they came down and did that so i know they work all around the area but i i'm not sure where their physical address is well, I'll, I'll get together with them. I need to learn about what they do and uh, talk to them and see if we can't get something going on the uh, for the big pecan at the very, very least. You know, it's just it's such a basic thing. They put what they call the points at the appropriate place, and uh, I I presume they, they do trees. They certainly do houses and other structures, but it's just a matter of putting the points in the areas that are likely to take the strike, and then I think they usually use that kind of braided um cable to take it down to ground level and then unless something's changed and things may have changed but i know around my barn in places where it's difficult to drive a grounding rod down into the rock they basically buried about a um oh probably two by three metal plate fairly well into the ground moist soil on top of it i understand that now on homes that they sometimes tie it into the uh reinforcing iron in the foundation but uh it's an it's an evolving science, so to speak, and uh, just very important. And you sure want to get a professional helping you with it. But I've got a lot to learn too. But I'm sure they'd be happy to to share with you uh, at any point uh, what they've yeah, learned and what they recommend. I look forward to talking to them about that. I, I, uh, uh, I've been in uh, Houston. You know that we helped to push over to being or, organic. There has. Uh, copper cables in a bunch of the trees there on mm-hmm. the uh, site. They were there when I first saw the place. And I think there, there there aren't points or little antenna type things. I think there's just the the copper cable sure. going out to certain places and stopping and then it goes down into the ground. Maybe wrong about that. It was a long time ago when I saw I, it. You know, that may be state of the art and there's no reason that wouldn't work. Yeah, it's a good idea. I will be uh, looking into it. One of the columns for my uh, Dallas Morning News column I'm I'm thinking about, uh, because I saw a house yesterday with a tree trunk that was growing so so close to the house that the trunk was beginning to touch the brick on the house. And it's a subject that comes up a lot. People call me and ask me about it because a lot of the insurance people and the uh, foundation people and, and others 
recommend that if there are trees closer than 20 feet to the house that they should be cut down. And I see a lot of people doing that, even with oh, large wow. shrubs and things like that. And it's always been a head-scratcher to me because, as you know, there are probably literally millions of trees within two or three feet of foundations all over the world and not creating a problem. Mm-hmm. And so you get into this dilemma about, okay, what do you do? Do you consider it a problem and do something about it, or you you leave them alone? For example, I'm looking out my window right here, and, and a 15-inch red oak is 10 feet from the house. Mm-hmm. And around the property, there's probably 10 that are that close or closer. And uh, there's there's one foundation guy here in town that uh, we communicate every now and then because when I write something even closely uh, related to it, he'll call me and we'll talk about it. And he, for the most part, agrees with me that that the uh, root barrier that works the best in most cases is the beam of the house. Sure. Yeah. They put it. I think they call it a grade beam. Yeah. Yeah. The roots will go over and hit it and go sideways and. Generally speaking, the moisture level is lower under the house than it is outside. So why does a tree need to, you know, duck under the beam and, and grow up under the house? So in most cases, it, it's not a problem. But he told he told me more than once that he's uncovered, he's gone in and uh, taken floors out of houses in a couple of cases, and there's just been massive amounts of roots under the house and no no leaks. Mm-hmm. or anything and he says it's a, it's a real head scratcher about why it happens in some cases and usually it doesn't he said in most cases it will happen where there's a cracked foundation sure. you know or a leak so there's uh, you know trees don't seek out probably don't <laughs> seek out moisture but when they run into it they build up in that area you know well we're so that's probably one that I, I need to write a column about and at least get some uh, more questions out there for people to think about well, I I totally agree there, and the thing about it, uh, I would never, and we I see the same thing probably as often as you do, and these uh, foundation companies come in and say, oh, you better cut that tree down. This day and time, the air spades are so efficient and so relatively yep. inexpensive. Yep. I tell people, get somebody with an air spade out there, blow a trench along that grade beam, and let's see if the roots are causing a problem, and... I've seen, um, you know, where you'll have a mass of roots just up against the side of the grade beam, but that's not causing a problem. Now, people that, that, you know, build a house and put it on top of existing roots, I can see where that would be a problem. But if a grade beam is properly done, it's going to go four or five feet down into the ground to stabilize the house, and that's pretty much going to cut through any existing roots. So, in my experience, it's been a very rare when there is truly a problem. Now, somebody on a pier and beam house, uh, as I live on, and uh, you're, at least a portion of your home may be pier and beam, but uh, yeah. that may be a different issue. But on a solid slab, uh, I, just, I, I just don't think it's going to be a problem 98% of the time at least. Well, both of those will have a beam at the edge mm-hmm. if, it's, if they're built properly. So... You know, there's a lot of houses around the world that are built around big trees. Right. So, you know, you just got all these examples of it not being a problem, but then you have, you know, a situation where where it is. So it's uh, it's an interesting uh, 
it's an interesting thing to figure out what to do in some cases, but mainly I'm going to write and show pictures of a lot of big trees that are close to houses and not, not causing any problem at all, so people at least think about it. Well, and and I'm still, I guess I just love trees so much that uh, I'm all of, you know, get that air spade out there. If you've got roots causing a problem, take that root out. Don't take the whole tree out. Uh, take out the offending thing. Try to correct whatever it is that uh, is allowing the root to get into that area. And, um, of course, if you've got a tree up so close that it's, you know, hitting the soffit or something else, and <laughs> many times I'd still rather move the house than the tree, but I guess I just, uh, and if it's a hackberry tree, to me it's very different than if it happens to be a heritage uh, live oak or something like that or a pecan, but uh, I'm sure not one for taking out every tree within 10 feet of the foundation. That's ridiculous. Yeah, if you if you run into a lot of trees over at the house when you do the airspace thing, you can do root pruning and sure. uh, take care of it if you need to. And you can also put in a root barrier. One of the things that this fellow that I've dealt with through the years also recommended to me was to never use a perforated root barrier. He said it still can suck moisture out and hmm. and be a, end up being a problem for the uh, foundation and he had a couple of other reasons that I didn't quite understand what he meant but he said if you're going to put a barrier in it should be solid which you know would be just like the beam the beam is a solid right. uh, barrier uh, as well and then of course we both agreed that the the people and unfortunately the people that use the ones that have little poison pills all over oh, they have wow. a little little mm-hmm. pockets of herbicide built into the uh, barrier. Of course, that should never be used. No. It'll do all kind of damage to your trees and other plants as well. You know, speaking of that, I had an interesting call very early this morning uh, with a fella, and I don't know whether it was him or somebody had come in and used a fertilizer with herbicide in it and then recognized how bad that was. We were talking about the activated charcoal and carbon and things to get it out. At what period of time do you think, you know, hey, it's done all the damage it's going to do, you know, we don't, we're, we're not going to be that effective with a detox program. Do you think there's ever a timeline when uh, the herbicide has done all the damage that it's going to do, or do you think it's, you know, uh, other than the sick tree treatment, which we recommend all the time, but using the activated carbon, is there a point that you say it's most effective and at a point that it's probably not going to do that much? I think it, that the uh, fine textured activated carbon will work any time of the year you use it. And uh-huh. It locks up the problem immediately. It's not going to completely eliminate the toxins. They're still going to be there, but it takes them out of being bioavailable. Mm-hmm. And then as I, here's the, the tricky part about the whole thing is that <laughs> even using my uh, recommendations on a detox program, that it also... Uh, the the big uh, complex molecules don't just disassemble, just explode and go away. Right. They break down in in chunks, and some of the metabolites, some of the you know resulting compounds as they're breaking down, can be as dangerous or more dangerous than the original uh, thing. So uh, even if you did a test and you didn't see specifically glyphosate mm-hmm. molecules or the 2,4-D molecules or whatever, chlordane, whatever you're, you're specifically looking right. for, there could be something that's still dangerous in there. So it's always a good idea to try to tie up stuff with the carbon and do the that makes, easiest 
That makes real yeah. good sense. That makes excellent. Any any time of the yeah. year that you need to do it, I don't think I don't think timing makes a lot of difference. And even if it's been a while since this soap was applied, there may still be dangerous metabolites, even if the specific toxin you started out with may not be present. There are still things you'd like to sequester and tie up. Yeah. I was talking to uh, one of our advertisers a couple of days ago that does the uh, Dr. O'Hara's probiotics and the mm-hmm. ME3 that you know produces glutathione and all that stuff. And I was we were talking about the Roundup situation. In fact, there's a new thing I want to tell you about the Roundup uh, issue. But I was telling, they were asking me, well, what can you do? There's nothing you can do. People have been using Roundup for years and just contaminated. And I said, well, yeah, there is. It's, a, it's called the detox program, and I explained to them the activated carbon and the whole thing. And the guy sitting beside me, who is the president of the company, he said, man, that is so interesting because he said that's exactly what we recommend for human toxicity is to take activated carbon to pull the, the uh the molecules out and and we know that it doesn't they don't break down it's just locking them up and flushing being able then to flush them out of the system it's it's really interesting how close human health mm-hmm. is to uh, the health of the soil health of the land well it it was interesting to me somebody a chemist actually pointed out to me the similarities between a chlorophyll molecule in a plant and hemoglobin in our blood that uh, we're, we're a whole lot closer to plants than what people realize. And, of course, one of the big things about the dangers of glyphosate is that uh, the bacteria, the flora of our intestinal tract, which is a basis of our immune system, that's what Roundup targets. And so uh, we've got, in effect, we've got little microscopic plants living inside of us that are what are keeping us healthy and fighting off the that's different right. problems. And that's that's one of the many things that's so bad about glyphosate. There's... Have you heard of the film called Hidden Ingredients? Mm, I don't know if I have or not. It's something brand new, and it's apparently a follow-up to uh, the original genetic roulette, or, yeah, yeah, I believe that's what it's called, genetic roulette. Yeah, if it's Uh, new, I don't think I've heard about it. Well, two of our employees uh, went to see a screening of this film. It was a special deal. You know, our our GMO activist friend, Diane, was part of the group it was a dinner it was the film it was a panel discussion i simply don't do things on friday nights uh, in most cases because i have to get up so early saturday morning but they were uh doing this last night so i can't wait to get to uh the nursery and hear from our two of our really great people that that went to it to hear from it and uh it's it's a follow-up with the same people to uh, the genetic roulette and uh I, you know, it What's should be just fascinating. It I believe it's called Secret Ingredients. Secret. Gee, I think it's well, secret. I'll, yeah, I will definitely look into it. Well, let me tell you something new on real quick. I know we got to go here, but uh, on the Roundup uh, issue, the big distributor called Horizon that uh, distributes stuff all over the country, primarily chemicals. They've mm-hmm. gotten into organics, you know, the Pure Grow thing and all that. They have officially ended. Handling Roundup. Ah, uh, that's phenomenal. It happened, it happened this week. So things are continuing to happen like that that are that are big, big deal. Uh, and we just need to keep the pressure on. So yeah. we'll uh, continue next week talking about <laughs> all this good stuff. Well, and it is. Enjoy this weather. 
whatever it is by tomorrow. It is it is secret ingredients. That's that's what the name of it is, a secret ingredients. Okay. The other thing, too, that uh, maybe we'll have time to get to, uh, did you get that article I sent on uh, the explanation of why really healthy plants seem to be more resistant to the, the BRICS level actually being associated with why insects uh, avoid healthy plants? Uh, I thought it was real yeah, interesting reading. That. Yeah, that when the bricks levels up, the bricks, the high sugar levels actually make insects sick. So mm-hmm. they can detect it and they can stay away from it, just like they can detect it and go after it when it's concentrated in a, in a sick uh, uh, plant. You know, like uh, the the sap sucker right. bird going after it or the squirrel eating the twigs. You know, just the reverse is true. I just it was it was a good article and wanted to be sure you got it. Well, Howard, as always, you guys have a, a wonderful week. Enjoy. Enjoy this <laughs> pleasant temperature while it lasts, and we'll see we'll see where the roller coaster is right now. I hope it's uh, kind of going on a flat plane for a little while. Enjoy it. See you guys next week. And give the dogs Bye. a pet for us. Thank you. Bye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, best uh, website on the Internet for good plant information that is so applicable, you know, throughout the area. There's just so much what's on the Internet simply doesn't work for South Texas and uh, or Texas in general. Dirtdoctor.com, you're going to find a wealth of information there. And if you want, you do as I do, join the Organic Club of America. You'll have access to even more videos and more information. So anyway, check it out. We're going to talk to Gilbert and Gerald, and then we'll see where we go from there. Do still have uh, some open lines? So uh, good morning, Gilbert. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. How are you this cool morning? <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to getting uh, back out in that fresh air. It's a nice morning out there. Great, yeah. It feels really good. Well, this morning I had a couple questions here. I, it surprised me this, uh, this year. I have a grapefruit tree, okay, a tangerine tree, mm-hmm. and a lemon uh, Myers lemon tree. Okay. And this for for, for some reason this year. Uh, the grapefruits never got yellow and big, and the tangerines never got orange, and the Myers never got yellow <laughs> for some reason. I don't know what happened this year. Well, it's a combination of things, and, um, you know, it's still not too late. I There are a lot of years that uh, I, you know, used to go to the valley fairly frequently buying plants, and there are a lot of years that it's December before you the fruit really reaches its peak of ripeness so um uh this is just you know we aren't even halfway through october yet so uh it's not typically what we see things usually start coloring up a little bit early but uh summer was longer than usual fall is a little bit later than usual in arriving so i wouldn't be surprised at all two weeks from now if you're not seeing a totally different situation now um you can harvest a fruit here and there and you know, taste for sweetness, but um, I, I, you know, I think we just really need to be a little bit more patient. I think that fruit just is not going to be truly ready to pick probably for another four to six weeks. I took a, uh, I took one of the tangerines off the tree uh-huh. to see how it uh, tastes, and it tastes pretty good, nice and sweet, and you know, it's nice and what I expected when it's nice and ripe and orange. Uh huh. But it's just green. Uh, everything's just green. <laughs> well, you know, all the stuff you get in the grocery store is picked green, and it's artificially uh, 
changed color. They use ethylene gas. They use a couple of different uh, ripening type of gases, uh, and ethylene's the main one. It's not like a real toxic thing. It'll certainly uh, it can be damaging to plants, but uh, uh, most of the really brightly colored stuff you see in the grocery store is not natural. It was picked as green as the trees, you know, on your property, and then it was uh, gas ripened or gas colored, so to speak. So not terribly surprised about that. I think yours will color up over time, and I think the flavor will even improve as the sugars become more and more concentrated. But uh, it's, <laughs> if you're basing what you're seeing on what you're seeing in the grocery store, that's not real what you're seeing there. That was artificially created as a marketing ploy, so to speak. So uh, just harvest and enjoy. The nice thing about it is when they haven't fully ripened, you can leave them on the tree. It's not like you have to pick them all and then try to find a way to store them. You can go out and pick yourself one or more, you know, every day and enjoy. And then uh, hopefully it'll be a while before we really need to pick them and get them in because of uh, weather or things like that. So uh, um, you're not really surprising me with this. I think uh, the color is just going to be a little later coming along. But uh, uh, if that if if your tangerines were going to H-E-B, they'd put them in a, a chamber, gas them good, and then let them uh, turn a little bit brighter color before they put them out on the shelves. Okay. Uh, my other question is, um, I have a, uh, my neighbor has a pecan tree that gives the most biggest pecans I've ever seen. Okay. And uh, I have one too, and it's it's young, it's about maybe eight years old. Okay. And it's, uh, last year was the first time it gave me the, my first pecans. Uh-huh. And, and they're not small, and they're about medium size, but uh, what I'm, I was thinking of doing is, uh, clipping some of kids some clippings some cuttings from that big one the big uh, pecan tree mm-hmm. with the big pecans and graft them to my other one what is that what would be the best time to uh, that's do a the great, cutting? that's a great question and uh, there there's a lot to know about it um, you need to harvest uh, after the leaves have dropped from your neighbor's tree that you like uh, you need to harvest those. You will wrap them like in moist paper towels, put them in a bag, put them in the refrigerator, and you want the development, so to speak, to be delayed. You don't just, you know, take the wood off one tree and graft it immediately onto another tree. You harvest the wood um, late fall, midwinter, and you hold it uh, in refrigeration normally until about February or so uh, when the grafting is actually done. But I'll let you do a little more research and, uh, you know, you'll find online or you can probably find a book or two on grafting. But uh, it is very, very doable and it is probably a very good idea. But uh, there's more to it than simply taking a limb off one tree and grafting it to the other tree. You have to take your graft wood early, store it to the proper time, and then graft it onto your tree. And there are people that will do this professionally, but uh, I learned how to do it in college and it's not really a... Uh, real fancy technique or anything else, but the, the collecting of the wood, the delaying of the development of the wood is very important uh, for that graft to take properly. Okay. So I guess uh, uh, right now that the tree, my neighbor's tree, has got the, the pecans already mm-hmm. really big, but, yep. you know, of course, they're wrapped up. They're wrapped up with the green stuff. Right. The green layer. And you think maybe it'd be right now about the right time to 
get some cuttings? No, no. You take your wood uh, after all the pecans have dropped, after all the leaves have dropped oh, from the tree. It'll be mid uh, mid December when you take your cutting or take your cutting gotcha. wood. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Well, just in the meantime, just hope the squirrels don't get all those good pecans and a lot of them blow down on your side of the fence. And uh, (laughs) I appreciate the call. You have a wonderful weekend, Gilbert. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh Goodbye. All right, let's finish up the garden show. Get ready for the home improvement show. Martin Baum is over there in the producer's room. So good to see his smiling face in the studio this morning. And uh, be open on those phone lines for that in just a moment here. Right now, we're going to talk to Gerald and then Sandra. Good morning, Gerald. Good morning, Sam Marcus, Texas. Uh, one question so we can get Sandra in. <laughs> we have, we uh, have is time. Good, uh, is it a good time to plant my ryegrass? Yes. Yes, especially with yeah. this cool weather. Um, whether you do an annual or perennial, by all means, um, get it out. Remember that ryegrass we sow a little bit more heavily than we would a seed like Bermuda. Are you doing uh, overseeding existing grass or covering bare ground? Uh, existing, St. Augustine. Yeah, figure about a pound for every 100 square feet, um, okay. maybe even a little bit less than that, maybe maybe a, a half a pound per 100 square feet, but uh, that's certainly still much more than if we were putting out new grass seed. But no, I'd, I'd do it today, water it in, and uh, you should have, um, you know, green grass sprouting within uh, probably four or five days. If you want to put it off, there's not a rush since your St. Augustine's still green and healthy. But if you want to go ahead and get it started, yeah, I think we're fine to do any time now. Well, with that said, uh, my uh, Augustine needs watering, so it's three for one. I'm going to spread. <laughs> put, I'm going to spread. I'm going to put my uh, uh, the mulch and water it, and uh, maybe it'll come up in two days. I don't think that's going to make that much difference, but at least you'll only have to water once. Have you fertilized within the past uh, 60 days or so? I have not. I would think about putting some good organic fertilizer down as well. uh, Compost uh, is great stuff. It works with your fertilizer, but it doesn't replace your fertilizer. And I think the fall fertilizing is actually the most important of the year. Um, So we might get one more additional benefit putting... uh, you know, that uh, a bag of good organic fertilizer is going to cover four to 5,000 square feet. So I'd think about doing that along with everything else. And uh, who knows, it might be green by the time you turn around. Excellent. I really appreciate your uh, your show. Very informative. Uh, I have a lot more questions, but uh, let's get Sandra in. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. You too, Gerald. Thank you so much. <laughs> Goodbye. Up in San Marcos, uh, it's amazing to me how many different places uh, I get to visit with people from. Right now, it's time to talk to Sandra. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm good today. How about you? I'm doing well, thank you. I just have a quick question. I kind of was trying to save some sago palm trees from from being torn down with an old house that was uh, my brother bought. And uh, so I had somebody take them out for me. They're like probably 40 years old, and they planted them for me, but now they're turning yellow, and one of them uh, is the the leaves are turning brown, and um, I'm not sure what I'm doing. I did water them, and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what to do with them, so... I think I killed them. I'm killing them rather than saving them. <laughs> well, uh, when when did this occur? When were they transplanted? Uh, back in July. Okay. Well, that should have been a good time. 
How often are you watering them? Well, I was watering them every day. Okay, that's a little much. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's perfectly normal. They're going to go through a little bit of shock, but since they got transplanted when the soil was still warm, I would I I think you're writing them off a little too soon. I sagos are interesting in that they only put on one new set of fronds a year. They do all their growing in about a three-week period in the spring, typically late March through early May. Uh, They have about a three-week burst of growth where they put out the fronds. The fronds come out very soft. They harden off. And then the plant does not change for the next year um, unless it decides to bloom. You don't get any more new fronds or anything. And the fronds that are on these that are transplanted, they're obviously going to go through a little shock of transplanting. They're going to go through a shock of having those roots cut, and now they have to grow some new roots. So um, I think they're probably just going through that normal transition, and we're not going to really know how well they're going to do until they put on next spring's growth. But I, what I would recommend is... When you water, water thoroughly, but don't water until you can get up there and stick your finger down in and that soil is dry about an inch deeper. So you don't want to keep it the soil super saturated or it drives the oxygen out of the soil and those developing roots need oxygen. So I think I'm going to cut back on how often you water. Um, if you want to periodically just spray over the top of them, uh, those leaves, the trunk will absorb a little bit of moisture. They're pretty tough. They've got a pretty good waxy layer on them. But let's cut back with on the frequency of watering. If you want to use a little fertilizer, good liquid product like has to grow or something like that. But uh, expect that you're going to have a lot of yellow fronds. Expect that some of those fronds are going to turn literally totally brown. And that's not going to change until about next March or April when they put on a new set of fronds. So uh, I think they're just going through a normal transition. I don't I don't think you're looking at anything unusual, Sandra, and I don't really think they're dying by any means. Only thing I really change is I wouldn't be watering them so often. Okay, now on the, the leaves that are brown already, should mm-hmm. I cut them off or should I leave them there? Or? That's up to you. If they have any green at all in them, they are still benefiting the plant. Uh, okay. If they're totally brown, it'd look a little nicer to trim them off. But... I see sagos that literally lose every leaf, every frond on them, and yet they come out fine the next spring. Oh, perfect. Now, um, on one of them, uh, there's a bunch of little little trees growing at the bottom. Should I take those off? No, leave them on there. I want them to have at least a year to become established on that trunk. And then next summer, about July or August, uh, they, they just don't root if you take them off after we start getting into cooler weather. That's something that's going to have to be done in the hot summer. So just leave them alone let them be. And uh, you can either leave them on or take them off, but we're not going to do uh, anything to them until the next summer. Okay. And what was the name of the fertilizer that you said? Any good organic product, uh, but uh, one of the easiest to find liquids out there is called Has to Grow Plant. Has to Grow Plant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hopefully, I will call you back and let you know. You call me and let me know how they progress. I'll look forward to hearing from you. (laughs) Thank you. Have a great day. You do the same, Sandra. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye.